Warning, binge mode contains adult content. Yes, adult content. Uh, You know this by now. Come on. If you're still here, if you're still with us, you understand what's going on here. If, however, this is your first binge mode episode, somehow, (laughs) please go back and start at the beginning and listen to a couple and then decide if you want to continue because the content is adult. (laughs) And if that's not for you, Go ahead and check out one of the fine podcasts from the Ringer Podcast Network. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. <laughs> if you don't yet know why we're back in Moaning Myrtle's bathroom, oh! <laughs> please proceed with extreme caution. And now Binge Mode. Those names you have, they shouldn't be a burden. Albus Dumbledore had his trials too, you know. And Severus Snape. Well, you know all about him. They were good men. They were great men with huge flaws. And you know what? Those flaws almost made them greater. Last time to binge mode Harry Potter, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast. Oh, what a great network! (laughs) And a website. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. That's a great website. It is. Joining me today, now that he's finished trying to rewrite history to save Cedric Diggory, Mm. it's Ringer senior creative, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal. Such a shame the pretty one had to die. <laughs> At least binge mode Harry Potter, where we've been exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe, never will. Whether or not you've flown into the air to try to convince Voldemort or a Voldemort impersonator that he's your daddy, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points and stars for binge mode. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans. And which, like all of our social media communities, is an excellent place to continue engaging with your fellow binge heads between the end of binge mode Harry Potter and the return, the triumphant return of binge mode Game of Thrones. Yes. Please stay engaged and we will be there with you. Yes. Also. Head over to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch as useful as baby blankets for sending messages across time. The last two times on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we concluded our HP book and movie (laughs) binges. And on today's episode, we're completing our Binge Mode Harry Potter run by diving into Cursed Child's wide cannon. Oh! Answering your absolutely wonderful Alpost questions. With help from special guest Zach Lowe for one of those questions and sharing our closing thoughts on this magical story. As always, we will be going deep, just like Myrtle. Damn. She wants someone to go deep. That's exactly it. (laughs) She is the deepness. And she needs a wide cannon. (laughs) (laughs) On details from all seven books and ten films, including Fantastic Beasts. Mm -hmm. And the wider Potter canon, taking the entire 
serious into account. <laughs> every, every bit of it. From the moment Harry says farewell to us at Platform 9 and 3 quarters. So find a compartment, make a friend, and beware the trolley witch's grenade snacks. Yeah, the trolley witch has a lot of secrets. It's a real twist. <laughs> <laughs> because it's time to head to Hogwarts one last time. Though there's really no last time, friends. This will no! go on forever. That's part of what makes it magical. Mal, love blinds. We have both tried to give our podcast not what it needed, but what we needed. We've been so busy trying to rewrite our own past, we've blighted their present. So before we get to today's outpost, let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing our seven favorite things about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which are having the unique privilege of seeing it on Broadway and with the original London cast to boot. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. And because all running jokes aside, Cursed Child is in fact canon. Here it is, folks. At long last, the Cursed Child talk. Number one. The sheer awe-inspiring spectacle of seeing this show. We had heard, as many of you surely have, that you do have to see this in person to really appreciate it. And... That's an annoying thing to hear. It is annoying when people say that to you. (laughs) Because not everybody gets to see it in person. And many, many, many people, including the two people currently recording this podcast, had previously experienced it a different way, right? They're selling the script at bookstores everywhere. You go read it. That's how many, 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 many people are experiencing it. That's how most of us uh, first experienced it, obviously. However, we are forced to concede after having (laughs) enjoyed the sincere privilege of seeing this live, that it is a truly mesmerizing, remarkable experience. It costs like $68.5 million to produce the play. And when when you see it, again, I hate to say that, but when you do see it, the effects, the polish, the craftsmanship, the costumes comes together in a way that is really special. The uh, the practical effects, I mean, the first one we want to talk about, the the thing that blew us away every single time every it happened time. was the effect of the time turner. It's just amazing. I, I, it's hard to explain. It it's appear- like a pulse. Yeah, it appears as if the entire stage and everyone on it pulses and kind of warps mm-hmm. slightly. Mm-hmm. And the effect is so unique and absolutely enthralling that you see it the first time, you're like, I need them to do it again and, and again and do. again. And they do do it again. And every <laughs> single time it's like, wow, how do they do that? Yes. I think the time turner effect is maybe most emblematic of the in-person versus reading the script effect because the time turner story choice is maddening. Yes. JKR is on the record saying the that record. she destroyed the Time Turners in Order of the Phoenix to remove them from the universe. Caused too much trouble within the within the canon of the world. Right. And so as a reader who is invested in the story, yes. you sort of can't help, even if ultimately you you give in and lose yourself in the story, right. you sort of can't help initially but have that reflexive, wait a minute, why are Time Turners back in our story again? Response. And then when you see it. It's amazing. When you see that magic brought to life in, in front of you, you just, you cease to care, at least in the moment. You have an, a, an experience where you're totally captivated. And then as you process it later, you start to discuss the plot again. But basically, 
The simplest way we can put it is that the spectacle makes those nagging questions about the time turner or about the presence of another prophecy on which the plot heavily hinges or things like how can Albus and Scorpius see Lillian, James, and Harry? Shouldn't the Fidelius charm be in effect? Things like that just sort of recede into the distance of your mind because you are so utterly spellbound by the magic that the creators of this experience have figured out how to bring to life. The Dementor effect is another example. The Dementors are terrifying. (laughs) They fly out over the audience, making that trademark. It's incredible. And at one point they envelop a character and pull them up into the rafters. Is that a spoiler? Well, spoiler spoiler Spoiler. alert for all of this, certainly. I mean, the spoiler alert applies to the whole podcast, but if you don't want production spoilers, certainly then. It is, it is really, really, uh, it's really fascinating to look at because, you know, like, As a person who watches a lot of television, a lot of movies, I think you get used to the idea of, oh, they're creating this in a computer, even if it looks seamless. Mm -hmm. But to see a practical effect Mm -hmm. that you know cannot be computer created, they have to be doing something to make this appear before you, whether it be wires or some kind of projected light or just the angle that you're seeing it, it is really, really cool and really ingenious. They do a really good job at certain times during the play, like with the Dementors when they come out over the audience, of just making you feel like you're totally within this world. Yes. That this story that you know so well, or you think you do, is actually uh, reaching out to pull you into it. Mm -hmm. And the Dementors are a big part of that, and it's just a really cool effect. Another one that I love, and I actually think I turned to you during this and said, how are they doing this? is the character swaps to show Polyjuice Potion. And the acting, first of all, was incredible. Fabulous acting. We really were so fortunate to get to see the original cast. I'm sure every cast is spectacular, but that was a real treat. To get to see my future husband, Adult Juan Juan. This was insane, by the way. (laughs) Mallory, let me just stop here. Watching the the curse time. Played by... Paul Thornley. Mm-hmm. Mallory Thornley has a nice ring <laughs> to it. <I> think. <laughs> Who, a day later, we saw him uh, at a panel at Comic-Con. Yes. And he said, you know, he wasn't uh, super versed in Harry Potter at I, all. I found it compelling because that's how Ron would have yeah, treated it. But <laughs> he, na- he nails adult Ron. <laughs> now he's hoping I he like nails nail adult Ron. <laughs> <laughs> she turns to me. I don't know. He had this is like his second or third scene. She turns to me and she goes, and she just with the look, with the cocked eyebrow, like <laughs> and then googling him. Oh my god. During <laughs> during oh. intermission. Oh boy. Would not stop talking about the man. Smitten. What can I say? I'd be like Hermione in an alt timeline, just destroyed. <laughs> destroyed if I found out I couldn't be with him. <laughs> That's amazing. What were some of the other effects of seeing this live that really stuck with you? You know, a scene that I was just blown away by, both because it's an event you know so well, uh, but you're seeing it from a different angle, and just the the way they brought it to life on the stage was Hagrid in the ruins of of Godric's Hollow. The room is destroyed. The bed is on fire. There's a small baby there alone in the crib, and Hagrid is just like, what has happened? What has happened? Bundles up, Harry takes him away. It actually raised goosebumps on my arms because 
I guess I hadn't given it much thought what that must have been like for mm-hmm. Hagrid to walk into that scene. Mm-hmm. And they brought it to life. And it was chilling. That's a really interesting point because I think part of what I at least struggled with initially the very first time I read Cursed Child is these moments that you are so familiar with yes. and hear like look That's a great one degree different. Just yeah. like little snippets of dialogue from what we know from the epilogue in Deathly Hallows. And that is, of course, where Cursed Child picks up and those slight tweaks where you're like, this isn't. Right. The thing that I'm familiar with. Right. That can be alienating, but then something like the moment you just cited with yeah. Hagrid and Godric's Hollow, that feels like, I mean, in that case, a devastating one, but this warm, comforting embrace yeah. of the familiarity that you've longed for. Yeah. It's beautiful. It, really incredible scene and really stood out. The scene where they first approach Snape, we meet him, mm-hmm. he's writing on the blackboard, and, and uh, so now they're trying to explain to him about the alternate timelines, what's going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he draws a portal on this chalkboard that he's been scribbling on. And it turns into a actual portal that they then go through. That was amazing. <laughs> that, I was like, what, how did they do that? That was incredible. It was, that was unbelievable. And then Alan's, Albus and Scorpius uh, escaping from the uh, Scarlet Steam Engine. Um, <laughs> it was just a bonkers moment. Bonkers. Listen, the trolley witch throws grenades. <laughs> the, the pumpkin pasties. Become bombs. Become bombs. But, you know, there's this... Is there a but? There's this train, you know, the contraption that they they really... The train is there in front of you and they're on top of it and it's kind of spinning around and it all looks quite perilous. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much of this. I was just like, I want to know how they do it. Just flat out. I just want to know how they do it. Yes, absolutely. And then I I would say one more thing. The choreography in the Voldemort triumphant timeline was Mm -hmm. really cool. Like Voldemort's younger minions at Hogwarts, they all have this little interesting, like very fascistic hand motion that yes. they do. Yes. Uh, and the way they move is extremely martial and military. And uh, all of that was really cool, really brought this ominous undertone to it. Even just their their movements conveyed this ominous energy and was really awesome. Number two, for me, you know, so you, you mentioned seeing these scenes that were one degree off mm-hmm. and that when you're reading them on the page, it's like, oh, this is a little strange. I had the same reaction, but it absolutely flipped, particularly mm-hmm. in act one. Mm-hmm. So for me, number two, seeing the characters as adults and understanding their voices. You know, when I, so on the page, it's like, yeah, my Harry doesn't speak like this. My right. Ron kind of does speak like this, but not really. <laughs> you know, and my Hermione doesn't speak like this. But then when you see it on the stage, there it is again, you understand these are adults with mm-hmm. other problems and jobs and careers that they're trying to, and they're trying to balance that with a family life, and then the trying to balance all of that with the reappearance of this ancient enemy, and it all of a sudden makes a lot more sense. Their voices just feel a lot more like the characters you know, except extended into their their adult life. There is an interesting discussion in the script, mm-hmm. actually, that you can read between John Tiffany and Jack Thorne, and. Jack Thorne, we should say, <laughs> Jack Thorne wrote Cursed Child, mm-hmm. not J.K. Rowling. Right. Now, the three of them together wrote the story. It is based on her story. She is deeply involved with crafting the yeah. tale. But the words on the page yeah. are from the playwright Jack Thorne. And I think you really feel that when yeah. you're reading it the first time. That's not how J.K. Rowling writes. That's right. not how her characters sound. And something about the visceral sensory overload in a good way effect of being there as everything is clicking into place at once 
just makes it all feel a little more organic and natural. And he actually talks about that. John Tiffany says, so as the writer of the script, what do you hope happens inside the imaginations of people reading the play who haven't as yet been able to see the production? And Jack Thorne responds, I think that's a difficult question to answer. On the day before the play opened, I wrote a tweet which said, I'd love people to see it. It's better seen than read. This is the creator I mean, saying this. Plays are like sheet music meant to be sung. And we have a, great a cast and yes. crew of pure Beyonce. So maybe that's the answer, that they imagine the Beyoncés of the acting world, emotional and empathetic titans, killing every line with their subtlety and grace, because that's the reality. Our cast are extraordinary. And staging and movement and costume and lighting and video and sound that are all just sublime. It's honestly a great point, because there is a difference between writing dialogue for the page, which writing is linear. Conversations, the way they take place in real time, uh, happen all over the top of each other. So there's just a difference. There's a structural difference. And... It just made a lot more sense seeing it live. And I um, also like tensions between adult Harry and Draco. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that those were there. Mm -hmm. And then Malfoy's simmering grief over the death of his wife really humanized a character that is easy to hate. And in fact, who you are primed to hate for most of the series. Yes. The Draco of Cursed Child is a broken man in many ways, just a broken down guy trying to connect with his kids, trying to raise his son all by himself. And it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to do all that while still grappling with the things passed down to him by his Death Eater parents, the way people look at him, the way they raised him, the way they raised him to be, and how he doesn't want to be seen that way anymore. But at the same time, there's nothing that he can do about the way people perceive him. So there's, uh, they do a great job of, of humanizing Draco in this. Yeah, we're going to talk more about yeah. Scorpius later, but Draco's role as one of the central characters who forces you to think about the weight of legacy yeah. in any direction in a person's life is, I think, one of the more remarkable storytelling choices here. Number three? Yeah. Not all of Harry's wounds healed. Specifically... The Dumbledore wounds. And this play, in only a couple scenes between Harry and Dumbledore's portrait, conveys that pretty effectively. Personally, I struggled with it reading it for the first time because coming off of King's Cross, you want to believe that so many of those wounds have healed and that Harry and this part of his life have been made whole again. And... I don't know how much of this is a product of having seen it live and the way that they handle Dumbledore's portrait and that effect is that's so another one that's, cool. That's another one that's just amazing. So astonishing that really forces you to remember that it is a portrait, which we know is a shade of the person and not the person itself. And that helps kind of keep you grounded in terms of the perspective of what is actually transpiring. It's not Dumbledore. It's a shade of Dumbledore. It's somebody who allows Harry to process these feelings, but it's not actually Harry and Dumbledore in the flesh, full and whole. And I don't know how much of it is just that, as is so often the case with stories, when you experience something time and time again, you process it differently. You're not shocked by it. You know what to expect and can then assess it in a different way. As McGonagall reminds Harry in Cursed Child, portraits don't represent even half of their subject. Still, though, through these chats between Harry and Dumbledore, we are reminded of a very important lesson. I think it's one of the play's more powerful lessons. Healing is a lifelong process. Yeah, I mean, you think about all that Harry has been through through the course of seven books. Obviously, King's Cross and that 
conversation was extremely cathartic and clarifying. If you think about Harry as a flesh and blood person, there's it's almost unrealistic that he would just move on from all the things that had happened and all the ups and downs and things that were hidden from him for a reason, yes. But, uh, you know, as a person, you know, from my own experience of just getting older, there's things that you, you when you're 18 or 19 that happen and you're like, oh, I'm, I got it. I'm over this. I'm. I don't even think about this. Right. And you get as you get older, you're like, actually, this bothers me. Yeah. And I, this is like something that exerts a gravity over me every day that I didn't even realize mm-hmm. did. Mostly because I just, for many years, was like, I'm good. Mm-hmm. And they bring that out really well, particularly with those scenes where Harry and and Dumbledore Shade have those conversations. Yeah, one of the more beautiful and profound moments is when Harry and Dumbledore's portraits speak about. The idea of fatherhood, and fatherhood is something that we're going to talk about in a few minutes at length, but Dumbledore obviously occupied many roles Mm -hmm. in Harry's life, and a father-like figure, a mentor, a teacher, was one of them. And as Harry is struggling with his relationship with his son, Albus, Dumbledore's portrait says to him, you ask me of all people how to protect a boy in terrible danger. We cannot protect the young from harm, pain must and will come. And Harry says, so I'm supposed to stand and watch? And Dumbledore says, this is a gr- this is a great line. Do you want to really give credit where it's due in the script here? No, you're supposed to teach him how to meet life. Like you can't prepare everybody in your life as much as you would want them to for how to process everything. You can't change how they feel. You can't actually live life for them. You can just prepare them as best as possible for anything that might come their way and for knowing that they have love and support to deal with whatever that something ends up being. And Harry responds to that by saying how he won't listen. And Dumbledore says, perhaps he's waiting for you to see him clearly. And they're talking about themselves, right? They're talking about each other. They're on the surface of it talking about Harry and Albus, but this could be a conversation about Harry and Dumbledore. And that is a really neat literary trick. It is. When he shows up, after Albus and Scorpius are lost in time with Delphi and Harry is angry, he says, you were absent every time it really counted and I have proved as bad a father to him, Albus, as you were to me. Savage moment. Absolutely cutting moment. And also one again that comports with the trajectory of Harry's life if you choose to think about the way his life must have gone after the events of the books. Again, Dumbledore had a reason for everything he did. Mm-hmm. There are moments between those moments yes. where he could have been there more. It didn't have to be about the mission all the time. Right. He could have just come by, and he didn't. And those are the things that I'm sure Harry must think about. And you know? one of the things that's very compelling about this exchange is that we see that Dumbledore is still thinking about those things, too. Mm-hmm. You know, Harry isn't the only one who hasn't healed fully. And again, with the caveat that this is Dumbledore's portrait, a shade of him, the portrait says over the course of this exchange, I'm no fit person to love. I have never loved without causing harm. And that's important for us as we feel, as as readers, as viewers, who are, of course, in Harry's head and in Harry's heart and often, yeah. almost always on Harry's side, seeing it through his perspective, as you just outlined, it's important for a line like that to bring us back into Dumbledore's perspective as well and to remind us that the remorse and regret that defined his life regarding Ariana, Grindelwald, Aberforth, everything that led him to how he handled Harry, that he also still feels remorse 
for how he handled everything with Something Harry. I like to th- I love to think about, and especially I've been thinking about as we finished out the books, was just as you said, the way Dumbledore handled Harry and the way he handled Snape and the way Snape handled Harry and handled his whole mission. There's so much tragedy there and so much that those men are remorseful for. And what makes it especially bittersweet is I'm not sure what you could change Mm-hmm. In any given moment, especially towards the end, start getting into, you know, book five, six, and seven. I'm not sure what any of them could have changed to make it better for Harry that wouldn't have endangered the mission as a whole. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing where as an adult, as a person, if you were one of the characters in this story, as you went on with your life, that you would just wonder about, what could I have done differently? Would that have changed the mission? Would, would Voldemort have been on to us earlier? Would one of the Death Eaters have found out? Would they have just have killed Harry instead? I mean, those are the things that would haunt a character. And they, and they did a great job of bringing that to life, those regrets and those fears in a story that you know, you consider over after the epilogue. Right. And certainly one of the themes of Cursed Child is the idea of meddling with time and trying to change something to make it better and thus in the process making it worse or unforeseen consequences. And that all gets back to one of the core themes of the overall Harry Potter canon, which is, of course, our choices. And what you were just saying gets us to another powerful quote from Dumbledore's portrait in the play, which is Harry There is never a perfect answer in this messy emotional world. Perfection is beyond the reach of humankind, beyond the reach of magic. And every shining moment of happiness is that drop of poison, the knowledge that pain Mm. will come again. Be honest to those you love. Show them your pain. To suffer is as human as to breathe. And could he have shown Harry his pain a little more? Yes, maybe so. But here we see how that question, just the very nature of that question, it, it not only defined his life it is defining his death and you know after harry cries after him not to go and they express their love for each other in a very tender moment we're reminded that there's still this divide between them and there always will be to some extent but there's also this eternal healing process and most importantly of all love number four number four diversity noma dumazwini as hermione susan hayward as rose granger weasley the wonderful the plucky daughter of ron and hermione um there's always going to be the same kind of uh, uproar from f- fringe people when diverse cast members are cast in roles that people think they already understand and they've been somehow locked in stone as if fictional characters cannot be played by other people. I would say that, you know, I think it's really everyone deserves to feel what it's like to see themselves represented on stage as a character that they love. That's a really cool thing. And it's a thing not to take for granted because it's not available for everyone all the time. And watching this play, you're like, I don't get the criticism at all. Like, Mm -hmm. if honestly, if you have a problem with this, fuck off. I totally agree. I think this is incredible. Yeah. One of the legitimate criticisms of the initial Harry Potter story, it's it's not the most diverse set of characters. And diversifying the cast is really meaningful to a lot of people. And to take a central figure like Hermione and to cast a black actress to play her, to play her spectacularly, by the way, it meant so much to so many people. And JKR, to her credit, came out right away in response to the criticism and said, white skin was never specified. You know, it's, it's never stated in any one way. And even if it had been, so what, Mm -hmm. right? So what? These are fictional characters, folks. Number five, seeing Snape, 
as a pal. This is fun. This is, yeah. this is really fun. So one of the alternate timelines involves Severus Snape. Scorpius goes to find him. Albus is gone at this point, and Scorpius solo goes to him to basically try to convince him to help him reset the damage that they've done. And getting to see Snape, who of course is dead in the proper Harry Potter canon timeline, learn about what took place after his death. For example, getting to see him learn that Harry named his second son after that him. was heart wrenching. An incredible moment. He takes it in stride, as you would expect He's that he would. He's deeply touched yeah. by it. And the best part, I think, is getting to see him interacting and working with yes Ron and Hermione the, the and thing, our friends in the, life. The thing I liked about that, loved about that, actually, was it speaks to. Listen, Snape did a lot of shitty things, but there is an innate core of goodness that when it really comes down to it in a final choice between right and wrong even though this guy's an asshole uh-huh. he will pick right most of the time even in this alternate timeline where there's very where little Harry is dead Harry is dead there is no more incentive for him to do right, right. and yet he does they're keeping Dumbledore's army going yes. Hermione is a wanted <laughs> Extremely wanted. (gasps) Woman, a wanted witch. And we basically get a chance, you know, after they scoot through that magical chalkboard that you talked about to see Snape working with them on the same side, understanding and appreciating in his life for the first time what side he was really on. We even get some charming banter between them. There's this great moment after Snape learns from Scorpius that he's dead in the real timeline, that that what resetting things means is that he will be returning the world to a reality in which he does not exist anymore. There's this great moment where he's like, at least I'm not married to him because Ron and Hermione have just found out that they're married. There's real humor. We get to see the banter and that that scathing wit used for charm instead of to hurt somebody, which I think we can all agree is a very refreshing change. He has a great line when he says, sometimes costs are made to be born. And there's this Mm. high comedy moment after where he's like, oh, I didn't just like quote Dumbledore. (laughs) (laughs) It's just really fun. He duels with Umbridge. He casts his dough, which leads to this really lovely line. Strange, isn't it? What comes from within. This is the best alt timeline in general yeah, because we also get the best alternate Ron and Hermione love each other no matter what scenario. Yeah. This one is vastly preferable to the, the prior yeah. one where Hermione loses it because she's not with Ron. Quick aside. So there's an alternate <laughs> timeline that they tough. go to. This is one of the tougher things that happens in Cursed Child. Previous timeline. So Ron and Hermione do not get together in this timeline and Hermione goes Ron's to, with Padma. Ron is with Padma. <laughs> Hermione goes uh, and becomes the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher at Hogwarts and is just— It's a monster. Is a monster. Is so mean. Is so broken by her not getting together with Ron that she is snapping on students and screaming at kids and just a—bringing a real bad energy to the classroom. Terrible. And I got to say, like, you know, Hermione, obviously one of the most gifted witches— of all time and of her generation. Yes. And also, very active love life. <laughs> yeah. Loves a Quidditch player. A really good Quidditch player. Very active. I just don't buy that, like, yeah. her not getting together with Ron would, like, break her spirit. Yeah. I I like the idea that Ron and Hermione would want to be together and ultimately be drawn together no matter what. I can't 
cannot stomach the idea that Hermione Jean Granger would go to fucking pieces yeah. because she wasn't getting the D, the, the red D, D for the Ron. ginger D for Ron. <laughs> Okay. But Snape, great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Number six. Scorpion King. Scorpius. Wonderful. Malfoy, Wonderful. Uh, played by Anthony Boyle when we saw the, the show. And he's another one. You read the script and you're like, I don't get it. But there's a manic energy to him, a real nervousness, like a, an anxiety that is right on the surface. He's charming. He's very smart, loyal friend, but also as burdened as his father is by everything that's happened. Scorpius is, those pressures have been compounded somehow, and he just has a lot of trouble fitting in. He is a complete outcast, for lack of a better word, a nerd, and really delivers some of the best comedy of the show. Yeah. He has a real one-two punch of comedic flair and a real like beating heart emotional through line of yeah, the story raw emotion in a couple different ways. The role that he fills as Albus's best friend yeah. and the idea that, you know, they're this story's Ron, Harry, and Hermione. If you just have each other, if you just believe in each other, it will be okay. And then, of course, what he does to humanize Draco for us right. is really exceptional. And, and, and the idea of basically moving beyond the sins of the father, you know, Albus is not the only one who feels the burden of his father's name or feels some sort of divide between what the world perceives as the bond he should have with his father and what reality is. Early on, Scorpio says, and it's just like my father's. I got his nose, his hair, and his name. Not that that's a great thing either. And we understand very quickly what a weight that is for him to carry, though that does then lead us down the path of Draco's redemption. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense for them to be friends. You understand their bond right away, and you almost wish that they could, you know, just walk a few yards in each other's shoes for a second, understand what it's like to have the other's father and what that must be like. Really incredible. And as you said, Scorpius is the force that generates Draco's redemption in in, in a lot of ways. Draco absolutely loves his son. Yes. And is devastated by him not being able to parent his son in the way that he feels like he should be able to. Without his wife there, with all of this baggage that he brings. The Voldemort the, rumors about the, Voldemort actually being Scorpius's father. So he just wants to insulate his son from that, and he's completely powerless before all these things. He just simply can't. He can't make people stop whispering behind his son's back about who his father might be. Right. He just simply can't do it. And that yearning to to help his son, to let him be like any other wizard who can just go on in life without the attachment of his name, it's very powerful. It's extremely powerful. Early on in the first portion of the show, that manifests in Draco in the ways that we would expect. You know, him telling Harry that he's a curse upon his family, all of the stress. Oh, my son, did you scar her? You know, it's a lot of what we would expect. And the way that that transitions over the course of the story is very well calibrated to allow you to accept it and believe that it's genuine. As we see how Draco cares about his son and wants to protect him, we can accept the way that we then come to understand the larger reality of his emotional well-being or lack thereof. You know, there's a moment where he says, of the trio, of Harry, Ron, and Hermione, 
you, the three of you, you shone, you know, you liked each other. You had fun. I envied you those friendships more than anything else. And that's kind of shocking to hear. There may be people out there for whom it is too shocking to hear, right? That you actually just can't accept that Draco Malfoy would feel that way. Right. Hanging out with Crab and Goyle and Patty (laughs) all all those years. Broiled crab. Broiled crab. What more did you need other than broiled crab? But he says to Harry in Act 4, mainly I wanted to be happy. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, isn't that what everyone wants? And that you can believe no matter what. No matter if you ever felt an ounce of empathy or sympathy for this person, you can believe that he wanted to be happy. It is exceptionally lonely being Draco Malfoy, he says. I will always be suspected there is no escaping the past. Incredible. Number seven. This is the biggest of all. Whether you can abide some of the more outlandish plot points or not, seeing Harry grapple with the challenges of fatherhood is pretty remarkable. Harry in adulthood, period. You know, Harry after victory. What does life look like for a hero who has prevailed? We talk about this idea a lot. And we get to see here that it doesn't always look good. And again, that's like a bitter pill to swallow at first because the epilogue is very hopeful, very uplifting, even though we see that there's a lot of anxiety in it for Albus, a lot of fear, terror, and Harry having to try to find a way to comfort his son. And then that shifts here to us understanding quite quickly that his son doesn't like him, doesn't want to be his son, or at least thinks that he doesn't want to be his son. Albus is in Slytherin. Albus is bad at flying. Yeah. Albus doesn't want to go to Hogsmeade. There's a, a line that <laughs> is quite on the nose, but sums it up nicely when Polly Chapman says, one of, one of Albus's classmates, he really isn't like his father at all, is he? And we see what impact that has on the boy. Yeah, imagine being measured against this man who is a legend, actually a legend, a living legend, how could you ever hope to measure up? And, you know, there's a thing that happens to every kid, I think, at, at a certain point. You know, your parents are your your best friends up until that point when all of a sudden it's like, well, they're not. And you want them to drop you off a block away from school. or to, at, And that exact thing happens. That exact thing happens where Albus is like, could you just not? stand next to me on the platform. I right. need, just Heading like, to second year, the let contrast me to his first year. You know, it's like, it. I've already got the name. Everybody already knows. Can you just like stand over there and let me? That is ex- just extremely relatable to anyone, even someone with, without some totemic parent or ancestor mm-hmm. looming over them. It's very easy to think that being Harry's kid would be wonderful. Right. What do we know about Harry more than anything else? His heart, mm-hmm. full of love. And to try to accept that it might not feel that way mm-hmm. for one of his kids is a it's actually quite a bold ask of the audience you know it's i don't want to say that it's the same but there's it's some it reminds me a little bit of your take on order of the phoenix where it's like it was brave actually to make yeah. harry that unlikable for a book and mm-hmm. to ask people to believe that that's what real life is like. And there's something about this that feels that way to me too, this part of the storyline at least. You know, there's a moment when Scorpius is talking about a potion and he says, what do we need to change? And Albus answers, not about the potion, but about his life. He says, everything. This isn't what he wants. And he says to Scorpius, I didn't choose, you know, that I didn't choose to be his son. And that is so fascinating to think about in a story about the power of choice. You know, Harry's choices mattered and carried so much weight But he didn't choose for his parents to be murdered when he was a baby. You know, there are all these things that happen in your life that define it. 
that you don't get to choose. And that doesn't diminish the power of the lesson about the strength of our choices. If anything, it's the opposite. It reminds you that there are things that you can't control, things that happen to you, things that the universe breathes into existence, and it's how you respond to them that define who you are. You know, there's like, there's a weird perception that growing up stops at a certain point in your life and you really never stop learning things and you forget how much you didn't know looking back from the vantage of adulthood. Harry didn't have the benefit of parents who he could then turn to as he becomes a parent himself to ask, how do I handle this? What do I do now? How do I handle this situation? For his magical upbringing, for the mission against Voldemort, for all those things, he had all these mentors. And now, as he moves into married life, domesticity, and adulthood, trying to raise these children, he doesn't have that anymore. And he says that to Albus at the end. They're sharing this beautiful moment of honesty and clarity. And Harry says, the thing that scares me most, Albus Severus Potter, is being a dad to you because I'm operating without wires here. Most people at least have a dad to base themselves on and either try to be or try not to be. I've got nothing or very little, so I'm learning, okay? And of course, in some ways, that's not true because Harry had all these people in his life who set that example for him. And one of the story's really beautiful lessons is that family can come in so many different forms. But Harry, who was exceptional in so many ways, is just another person here who's trying to figure it out. But because he's Harry, because he was exceptional in so many ways, everything he does is under a magnifying glass. One of my favorite manifestations of this struggle that they have is the blanket, the baby blanket, because we get it on both extremes. We get it early on when they're really struggling. Harry gives it to Albus as a gift. What did James get? James got the invisibility cloak. Uh... It's definitely one of those, like, think it through Harry. (laughs) Harry is going here for real emotion. Sentimental reasons. Trying to actually— This is a priceless family heirloom. Yes, connect with Albus on a deep human level, but that's not how Albus perceives it and not what he's ready for. And it ends up becoming the impetus in that moment for the falling out, Mm -hmm. where Harry says, I'm done— with being made responsible for your unhappiness. At least you've got a dad because I didn't okay. And then Alba says, I just wish you weren't my dad. (laughs) And Harry says, well, there are times I wish you weren't my son. And a lot of what happens next stems from that. But then the blanket also becomes the heart at the end because here, we won't go into all the minutiae, but... It basically is how Albus gets Harry a message across time later on. How he reaches out to Harry literally through the symbol of emotion, of a connection to your parents across time and says, help, I need you, I need my dad. And so it's a really powerful symbol in that way. I I, I quite like that part of it. And you mentioned earlier, you know, the beautiful moment where we see Hagrid go into Godric's Hollow. What precedes that is the absolute agony of Harry and everyone else who's with him, having to watch as Voldemort murders James and Lily. And after everything that's happened, after Albus tried to go back and save Cedric because he, as someone who feels like the spare, identifies with the idea of the spare. And everything falls out of whack to the point where in one of the timelines, his own father is erased from existence, has been killed, is not around anymore, and thus Albus is erased from existence. To another timeline where Harry tells Albus that he can't see Scorpius because 
Harry thinks that Scorpius is this black cloud, which, yeah. of course, he is not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of it leads to this ultimate moment in Godric's Hollow in 81, whereas Harry is witnessing, has to stand by and let his parents be killed in order to maintain the timeline. Who reaches out to him, finally, after all of this? Who takes his hand to provide comfort and love? Albus. It's beautiful. It really is. And that's the thing. At the end of the day, the Fidelius charm doesn't make sense. Yes. I don't want another prophecy. I can't believe that the trolley witch tried to kill everyone. But a story about a father and son just trying to figure it out together. A reminder that Harry, for all that makes him special, is still just a person in the world trying to figure out how to live life every day. That's beautiful. I agree. My bonus. Listen, who stole Cursed Child from me personally? Who won it? Who won it? Who won the house cup? Moaning Myrtle, baby. Oh, my God. Let me just say this. <laughs> Moaning Myrtle, mm-hmm. played by Lauren Nicole Cipolletti, is a body spirit. <laughs> she comes squirting up. She comes squirting, all right. <laughs> she comes squirting up out of her drain pipe and is sitting atop, uh, what is that, a faucet? It's the the the, the piping, the, the sink. Piping, yeah, area. so the sink, yeah. but it's like a round sink mm-hmm. that you would, would have seen in like these older bathrooms and with lots of faucets around it. She comes up out of that and is sitting atop of it, kind of looks like a bird bath, legs spread, punctuating all of her extremely guttural moans <laughs> and sounds as she's very excitable with faucets continuously spurting as she says things. And she's like, Harry, you've grown up and says stuff like that. She says, so they ask her about Cedric. Right. So um, first she's with Scorpius and Albus. And right, right. then we get to see her with, with Harry. And they're asking about Cedric. And she remarks about how beautiful he was. Mm-hmm. She says, why always the pretty ones have to die? <laughs> she just comes on and steals. Like, you just want her in four more scenes. And the... Sexual subtext is not, it's not even subtext. It's not. She's out there being like, Harry, you look great. What are you doing? Like, what are you doing for the next five minutes? You look great. She literally says, <laughs> when Harry and Draco come in, and of course, she said, one of the things that she says to Albus and Scorpius is basically, I wanted to fuck both your dads. You yes. know, she's like, oh, she's I have history with, up. I yes. have history with both of them. And then they come in and she says, hello, Harry. Hello, Draco. Have you been bad boys again? Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> what? And Harry's literally like, my son is in danger. I need your help. <laughs> How is it you've grown handsomer and handsomer as you've aged? This is the line by which she is introduced. Oh, this this is incredible. Here's the stage show. I feel like we created Moaning Myrtle. I feel like we <laughs> created the cursed child Moaning Myrtle. Here's the stage direction. <clears throat> and then suddenly a jet of water emerges from the sink. And after it ascends, a very wet Moaning Myrtle. And what does she say? Whoa, that feels good. <laughs> It's right there on the stage. Canon. You cannot. I mean, it's not even subtext. It's text. Binge Mode's adult content is canon. Voting Myrtle out there looking for that D. (laughs) Jason. Yeah. Binge Mode could have been anything. And Amos is right. It was stolen. So I come here 
just to say sorry when I can. And of course, I come here to answer outpost questions from the binge heads. We got so many truly amazing submissions from all of you for this final yes. all Harry Potter edition of Ask the Underscore. Thank you so much for sending these. We're, we were really overwhelmed in a wonderful way. And we wish that we could answer all of them. And perhaps if we had Theodore Knott's time turner. Yeah, listen. Or Draco Malfoy's. We could. Any of them. But absent that, and we're a boost from our girl Mintumble. Mintumble! Wouldn't be the final episode of Binge Mode if we didn't shout out Mintumble. <laughs> we will do our best to get through as many of these as we can. First up, from James Jolly at JDog1994. How would you power rank your top five moments Ooh. from this podcast journey? <laughs> this is a great... Great second beat of the question here. I know you like to create the rules while answering, so I won't box you in. Thank you, James. Yeah, thank you. You go first, Jay. So I interpreted the way I, we interpreted this in different ways, uh-huh. right? I think this is great because it allows us to cover more ground. Uh-huh. So I interpreted this first as, you know, just things that we, that happened within the, the flow of the podcast recording. Number one, Megalion, I think, for me, was something that we had begun talking about <laughs> on our reread yeah. that just. It, it was almost, it, it's real to me now. Oh, yeah. It's just real. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was just like a really fun thing to talk about. So I, every time we talked about Megalion, I loved it. My good friend Tom is a, <laughs> a wonderful moment between us that is just like. Amazing. I, I sometimes will go back and listen to the very first, to that episode, <laughs> to the my good friend Tom, because it's really is like a funny, <laughs> it's just wild to think yeah. about. Like. There's your future wife crumpled beneath a serpent <laughs> statue, a creepy ghost boy lurking nearby, and you're like, help me with this, Tom. Pal! Tom! Hey, buddy! <laughs> I love it. The flesh, blood, and bone chapter mm-hmm. when when mm-hmm. Voldemort comes back. Love discussing that. It just gives me chills even now to think about it. I think it's one of the just chill-inducing and frightening and so viscerally wrought by JK, and I loved our conversation about it. I, it much the same way. I love talking about the cave with you. Oh, yeah. And then uh, the Prince's Tale, Forest Again, King's Cross. The, Strong you know, same. All those, all those discussions, all those conversations uh, were just very meaningful and, and wonderful. What about you? That's beautiful. I agree with everything you said, though, as you teased, I interpreted the question differently. The first thing, and these are in no particular order, mm-hmm. by the way. Same. Those were were same. Despite the request for a power ranking, (laughs) one of the ways we're avoiding the rule, James, is by not power ranking. One of my top five favorite moments from this journey is getting to actually go out in the world. We were so fortunate to get to take numerous trips together during Binge on Harry Potter. We went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Orlando. Shouts to our girls, Melissa and Allie. That was wonderful. What a time we had within that. The butterbeer, honey oh. dukes, getting Diagon Alley, yeah. Hogsmeade, all of it. Got to record a podcast there. We had a wonderful meetup there with the binge heads. That was in Orlando. That and was actually an, a lot of people came. I, it was wild. Say, that was an incredible moment simply because you and I were both like, it's like we're in Orlando. We're going to have a meetup. Who is going to come to this? Yes. I would be, I'm like, if five people come, I will be thrilled i was and people came and it was no one coming yeah. it was like amazing it was incredible it was energizing the only literally only bad thing about that trip was that was when i had the aunt marge size ankle swell remember <laughs> <Yes>. that <laughs> that was very tough i was worried that you might have like had some kind of tropical disease or something <laughs> 
And then we got stranded at the airport for a very long time, which was also tough. I want to shout out Matthew, who came to see us. Torment! Torment! <laughs> Our buddy! Who came to see us at that meetup in Orlando, who uh, we met at the Game of Thrones convention. Yes. And when I saw him walk down towards the stage, beautiful. I was like, it's Torment, what? <laughs> that was an incredible Lived moment. In the area. It's great to see him. Amazing. Truly amazing. Another, speaking of the convention scene, another trip we got to take was... To LeakyCon. amazing. In Dallas, Texas. The biggest of shouts, by the way, to our girl, Melissa and Ellie. Incredible one of the being. godmothers of Harry Potter fandom. inspiration as a person and as a business person. Incredible human being. One of our idols and through this process has become one of our friends, which yeah. is just like... A true pioneer, for wonderful. real. Getting to be at LeakyCon, getting to engage on the convention scene with mm. the fans to see how people still relate to the story in so many different ways was really marvelous. We had another meetup there that was, again, delightful. The binge head meetups are always wonderful. And then we got to make a trip to New York where we saw Cursed Child, as we just discussed. We also got to go to Comic-Con. We got fun. to go to the History of Magic really fun. exhibit, which was remarkable. Yeah, truly remarkable, actually. Go see that if you, if you can. And we had another meetup in New York, which was <laughs> Bonkers! That was bonkers. That one was wild because it was mobbed. Truly. I was not expecting that. Wild scene. We met so, so many, many people. wonderful people. It was a wonderful night. Cassie, we still have your letters that you wrote us. They're beautiful. They mean a lot to us. Number two, because that was all number one. Uh, one of my top five moments of this podcast journey has been the restricted Yeah, sections. those are cool. Every now and then we'll, we'll we'll pull back the curtain a little bit for a little behind the scenes peek. And when we were planning this out and comparing it to the Citadels mm -hmm. from the Game of Thrones pod, we thought, "Will we have enough?" We were worried. Boy, we were concerned. Boy, was there no reason to be? I mean, to really that part of the podcast in particular, I think, gave us a real newfound appreciation. Not that we didn't appreciate it before, but just a newfound appreciation for the the depth and richness yes. of the mythology, how deep the world really is, how yeah. much there is. And Pottermore has been obviously a huge gift in this respect, yeah. how much there really is there to discover. And no shortage of thanks to Zach Cram for any part of this, but yes. in particular... We got to shout out Cram for his help with the restricted sections. Not an overstatement to say we could not have done them without him, especially toward the end here. We'd, we'd <laughs> still be like 20 episodes behind if that was Cram. Number three, finding the bits, man. Finding the bits. You know, that was one of the really fun things in the Game of Thrones, Ron, was the inside jokes, the shared language of the podcast developing. And again, that was one of those, it's, I think, natural to have anxiety. Like, will yeah. we be able to find that again? Will we be able to discover that kind of magic and humor? And it was there, and the audience is such a big part of that, seeing what people respond to, the That's voice wonderful. work, the inside jokes, you know, seeing people making binge mode bingo with Megalian and my good friend <laughs> Tom and No Safer Place and things like that. That That is so, so fun for us. Yes. Number four, the social communities. I mean, to watch the Twitter following, the Instagram following, and Facebook group grow and thrive has truly been one of the most yes. surreal and meaningful parts of this process to us. It is very, very special, not only to see how people relate to the podcast, but yeah. to see how you guys have all found each other through listening to yes. the podcast. We are so, so, so grateful for that part of it. That has been remarkable. And then fifth, 
just talking about the story that I love with you, buddy. I love talking I mean, to you about any. I love talking to you about any subject, but especially about story, and in particular this story. It's just very meaningful. This is my favorite story of all time, and getting to talk about every single beat of it with you. I mean, we used to talk about it just casually, yes, all the time, and those conversations were extremely meaningful to both of us. And I think because we had such a groundwork for that. I would spend so much time looking forward to some of the chapters you outlined earlier. For example, you know, I knew what talking about Sirius's yeah. death, for example, was going to mean to us. Obviously, looking ahead to the Prince's Tale and the Forest again and King's Cross, it's just been really, really special to me. Next, Dan Desmond at Daniel T. Desmond asks. After this reread, has your order of best slash favorite books changed since mm-hmm. the last Mailbag HP pod? During your Game of Thrones pod, you both spoke of how Sansa's arc stood out when watching the show in a concentrated time frame. Have you had any similar observations of characters mm-hmm. during this HP reread? Thank you. My order currently, I think, order, Goblet, <sighs> Prince, Hallows, Azkaban, Stone Chamber. Although, like, Hallows and Prince, I don't know how you, they're of a piece, it's 3A and 3B. Yeah, I, I think that my order for best and favorite yeah. is the same just because it's it's so ingrained and I've spent so much time thinking about it over my life. But the thing that this reread definitely made me think about more than ever is that I think I think Deathly Hallows is really an underrated masterpiece. It's really good. And to stick the landing in that way is quite rare, quite uncommon. Landing. And we talk often about how Half-Blood Prince, while it's not either of our favorite, we love it, obviously. It's not number one on our favorite list. We think it's the best. Am I slandering you? No, I agree that it's it's the best book. I think Hallows deserves to be in that conversation. That's my one tweak coming out of this, is that I think Hallows deserves to be right up there. And I also find myself just thinking about those chapters. I've realized that a lot of my favorite moments, my favorite chapters, my favorite lines are in that book. What about the Sansa question here? Who was your... I find myself thinking about Dumbledore a lot. Mm -hmm. Some of that obviously is going to be uh, just, you know, we recency bias to some extent. But I really have just been thinking about the decisions he made, why he made them, his regrets. I think there's something to be said for someone who tries their best in an honest way. It's easier to forgive mistakes like that. You know, he he did what he thought was best at every turn. And maybe that wasn't always the right decision, the correct, the best decision. But he really did try in an honest way to do what he thought was right. And that was really complex. And I think he's just kind of a miracle of a character because, yeah. you know, as we've said many times, it would have been really easy to make him just like this stereotypical kind of wizard in a fantasy story character. And then the way that, his depth is unveiled when you read it back to back like this. Is It's just really startling. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I have a couple other candidates to throw out as well. One would be Luna. I, I think that obviously we've always been extremely fond of Luna. Yeah. But I think reading the story this closely and talking about it in this way, I appreciated how central she really is mm-hmm. to Harry's emotional development into something unlocking for him. Mm -hmm. And I just found myself more than ever thinking about her rising up my personal character power rankings and thinking that she's the one I want more time with. She's the one I want to learn more about. I have another answer that I think is a weird one. Okay, I concede up front doesn't necessarily make sense, but I'm going to try to justify it. Harry Potter. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Here's... 
what I mean. I knew you were going to say that. So since I first read these books, the entire time that I've cared about this story, I'm not sure. And I look, I don't have perfect recall right. over anything, but including my own life. I don't know that there were a ton of times when, whether it was in casual conversation or something more formal, listing my top 10 favorite characters, mm-hmm. say. I don't know if there's a single time I listed Harry mm. in the top 10 in the past, you know? And I think that's really normal, actually. Yeah, I do Not too. only for this story, but just stories like this in general. I agree. You know, the sidekicks or the slightly smaller figures or even massive figures like Hermione or Dumbledore like who uh, occupy a ton of screen time or page time and have a ton of really serious work of consequence to do in the story they're going to have a hold over you that is just different Mm -hmm. from the main characters and there's something that seems a little too obvious maybe about saying oh the main character is my favorite or this but I was just floored by Harry <laughs> during this reread. Just every step of the way. Like, so proud of him. <laughs> I'm getting really emotional right now. Like, I've obviously always been invested in Harry. I love this story and I love him. But I don't know. It's just like I felt more than ever like I was watching him grow up and become this person. And that, like, every choice he made... I just felt it more than ever and like felt like I understood more than ever what informed it and what the consequences were. And uh, I don't know. I was just so taken by what a truly brilliant creation he is. I think it's really easy to reduce him to the straight guy against which the more quirky characters like Ron or Luna or Fred and George shine through the light of their oddity and their idiosyncrasies. Mm. And Harry's just like the normal kid trying to get by and not die. And I don't know. I was just blown away by him and by how she wrote him and what she did. Love him. (laughs) What's next? Next. At Kevin Could. Jason, which HP impression was your favorite to do? Mal, which was your favorite to hear? I think Seamus is the best to do. Probably not the best for anybody to listen to. But it's the fun, it's fun to do because it, it reminds me of like Brad Pitt in Snatch. Snatch. I was watching that a little bit of that last night. It's like uh, <laughs> you know, like one of the uh, one of the Pikes mm-hmm. because it's it's just you know it's just sounds. It's just sounds. Not a great impression, but it's really fun to do. And then I guess like I think the best. I don't know. We're just maybe floor. Oh, oh, that's a great one. I'm adding that to my list. I like, I love, Fleur was fun. I, I don't know that there was a moment where I lost it more listening to you than the little boy, which people don't know was like, like a 20 minute. Oh, I just went on and on. That we had to cut down. I went on and on and on with that. I like literally fell out of my chair at one point because I was laughing so hard. My favorites, they're all wonderful. Thank you. Fuck anyone who says otherwise. My favorites are Seamus, which Mm. is just in, it's like, it's actually Pavlovian at this point. I can't help how I respond to it. Floor, which is. Floor is incredible. I love Hagrid. I find it really endearing, and I think that I think that because Hagrid gets a lot of uh, a, a lot of reps, yeah, you've mastered being able to convey different things with Hagrid. You know, we Thank can get so comedy, much. we can get emotional heft. I I love it. And then, and here's a curveball for you because we only heard it a couple of times. Right, let's go. 
I love Scrimgeour. <laughs> oh my God. You no, know, I Scrimgeour is Scrimgeour like I I throw up my back when I do Scrimgeour. <laughs> this is too much it, it's too hard to dredge up. I love it. I guess like uh, and you know what? Buddy Garrity was fun. Oh too. my god, that's of, like a great non-canon one. characters. That's a great one. Obviously, Moaning Myrtle too is, is very special. <laughs> What's next? Next, Ariba Siddiqui at a Siddiqui ninety four asks. This is a this is a sad one. Ready? Yeah. If you could save one character out of the entire series, who would it be? For me, Oof. it would be serious, so that Harry could get a real relationship with that's his Godfather. That's beautiful. We should say this was one of the questions that we got most in yep. some form. A uh-huh. lot of people ask some version of this. Do you have an answer for this? I do. It's a coin flip between Lupin and Tonks so Teddy can have a parent. But don't ask <sighs> me to choose because I think that would be cruel to just 50-50 chance give me one of them back. But I can't choose because that would honestly be cruel. But I think that's that's what I would choose. Do you think that if one of them had lived Teddy, Teddy would, would not, not have been kissing a teenager on the train when Teddy, he was 20 years old Teddy like the <laughs> Teddy is like the is just like the yeah I think that would have happened people would have been like Teddy stop it'll shock you? you to hear that I can't answer this question mm-hmm. <laughs> I find it impossible I'm gonna give three answers all of which are a cop okay. out you ready okay. Okay. <laughs> my gut is to say Fred Okay, because that one... I thought about that. That one shredded me. I thought about it. The other one I'm considering is Dobby. I thought about it too. That was the one where when I was reading Deathly Hallows for the first time, I actually had to walk away from the book because I could not see the words through my tears. That was how it affected me. And part of the reason that I'm considering those two is because of my third answer, which is... I don't think we can bring any of these people back Mm. because I think it would change something about the story. I think that is one of the clear lessons of Cursed Child. Meddling with time by trying to bring Cedric back. Look what happened. He became a Death Eater and he killed Neville, folks. And then Neville wasn't around to kill Nagini. And then guess what? Harry died. So do you want that on your conscience? I don't. Don't think so. All jokes aside, I don't think that there's any one death that we could undo, a person we could restore, right. that wouldn't fundamentally alter something about I Harry's agree. life. As absolutely agonizing as it is. You know, you want of course you want to so, say serious. I personally would want to also say Lupin because Lupin's always been one of my favorite characters. The fact that all the marauders die is like yeah. so upsetting to me. It changes something if they're around. I agree. <sighs> Give me Fred. Okay. Fred could be around. Fred. Right? Yeah. Because we have George. So we then would just have Fred and George and there would be more laughter in the world. It's wonderful. And maybe maybe Ron wouldn't be at the joke shop then though. So then who knows what happens. Well, Ron would be at the Yeah, Ron would move down a rung at the joke <laughs> shop. Oh, goodness. All right. I'm officially going with Fred, but my real answer is that as much as it hurts, yeah. I can't bring I can't bring anyone back. Wait, I changed my mind. Oh my can God, I bring Fred. back Hedwig? Oh, that's a good one. Can I bring back Hedwig? Sure. You can bring back Hedwig. I can't stand Hedwig dying. <laughs> like to the point where I, I think I repressed it and that's why I didn't think of it right away just now. I'm just looking at it like into the imaginary eyes of a poor orphaned Teddy. Teddy <laughs> Lupin who's like, you brought the fucking owl back. <laughs> you know what? And I would say to Teddy, I hope that you have the love of a good animal. Understand, Teddy. So that you can experience one of the purest, the purest bonds. Listen, Harry stood by and watched his parents murdered. Next. Next. (laughs) 
Brody Lancaster at Brody Lancaster asks my question, considering how quickly and widely JK is expanding the canon, were you guys ever nervous that the themes and connections in binge mode would change really drastically after the pod is all concluded? No, not really. Great I mean, question. I, I think I think that JK is still a young and vibrant person who is still creating and can and is creating stuff that could fundamentally shift the way we think about this story. But am I concerned about it? No. I think it's wonderful that we live in a world in which JK is still creating stuff and writing. Same. That's great. Same. No matter what happens with Aurelius. (laughs) Same. Uh, I think that one of the really special things about this story is that it is something we are still talking about a couple decades in and clearly will be talking about for all of time. Mm -hmm. And that new creations, new aspects of the canon, a new context in the world, period, separate from the story, things will change across time. They always do. But this story is eternal and the takeaways and the lessons of it are eternal and so i don't think that's something we ever worried about because it's just really hard for me to imagine a scenario where we stop thinking that the original seven harry potter books teach us something about the power of love and choice and friendship among other things based on literally anything else that could possibly occur i agree with you even if something about how we understand dumbledore's backstory changes for example Obviously, that's a very real example. Mm-hmm. That would not, you know, we spend a lot of time in our Fantastic Beasts podcast talking about whether King's Cross could ever be compromised by what happens yeah, in Fantastic Beasts. Let's play out the worst case scenario for a second here and say, yes, mm-hmm. that the canon actually is altered. Does that change the lesson of the original not story for you? No, I don't think so. And that's what's so magical about it. There's also like, <laughs> this is something I keep reminding myself. We get to that moment in King's Cross after seven books. We get the Aurelius reveal after one movie, one movie in and three quarters, right? Give her a chance to stick the landing. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's all. Yes. Give her a chance to stick the landing. Let's say, you know, there's any number of plot twists in any of the books leading up to Deathly Hallows, where if you pluck that out, And erase your memory of what comes after. You're like, this is kind of a weird decision. Mm -hmm. So give her the chance to stick the land. Yes, give her the chance. We believe she will do it. And even if, God forbid, she doesn't, that's okay. The seven books will always exist. They exist. What they are. Beautiful. Next, speaking of the seven books, Corey Collins at Coco Corey Collins asks, this is a good question. That's a great one. They're all good questions. If you could read a seven-book series from the perspective of another Harry Potter character over the same span of seven years, who would you want it to be? This is great. We should say there are there's a vibrant fan fiction community where a lot of people yes. have written versions of the story from other characters' perspectives. But if we could get an official one, who would you want? I think Snape is the easiest to say, obviously, and obviously the most compelling because yes. he's on so many sides of this battle. He's he's yes he's everywhere. Yeah. If you want Death Eater stuff, he's there. If you want Voldemort stuff, he's there. If you want Harry stuff, he's there. You want him in the absolute halls of power with the Order of the Phoenix, he is there. He's there up until almost the end. Uh, so yeah, I think he's the easiest one. And then I'd go Hermione. I, I, I just love. I would just love to know her thought process, like the way she goes about things. I think there's a lot of cool scenes to be written where she's, you know, plowing through this stack of books and has a eureka moment, pulls mm-hmm. something out. Those are really cool. We don't get a lot of those. from You know, to get that from her perspective would be wonderful. I think that there is, like, obviously also from her perspective, like getting a Hermione POV on her extremely active, 
active dating life <laughs> would have been <laughs> would have taken the series in a whole nother direction. Oh my God. Yeah. When she's just like, how do I juggle these three guys right now? Amazing. Also, like having her as as your avatar when all the time turner stuff is happening in Azkaban would have been pretty cool. Like the whole oh, yeah. thought, what was she thinking? What was she feeling when she decided, you know what, in order to take on this course load, I'm going to use a time turner and here's all the, here's all the hijinks. Here's I'm gonna, how I'm going to hide it from people. Mm-hmm. That would have been really cool. I mean, those are my two big ones. Dumbledore, obviously, too, but I feel like that's too obvious. But, but obviously Dumbledore also. You don't want the Bellatrix Lestrange story? It's, I can't. You don't that's, want you don't want the snake milking. That's like you can't even. I, I don't think you can release. That's a different book. They sell that at truck stops. <laughs> oh my god! And plus, a lot of it is like I'm in jail. Uh, you know, masturbating to the idea of Voldemort, and then he breaks her out. It's like several years of her masturbating in jail. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, My answers are all the same as Jason. Snape, Dumbledore, Hermione. I do think that the prince's tale is the perfect snapshot of why either a Snape or Dumbledore story would be so remarkable. The other thing about a Snape perspective that I do think would be pretty meaningful to a lot of people is that the divide really continues to exist around that character in a kind of astonishing way, a justified way, but an astonishing way that that debate sustains itself particularly because of the kind of person he is, how he treated other people, how he behaved. And so I think getting the the story from his perspective would allow us insight into the moral ambiguity or the overt moments of bullying and hatred to understand what was in his heart and mind in those moments to help bridge the gap between that outward persona and the character that we want to believe in in the end, I think would be wonderful. Dumbledore, you're right, it's too obvious, but I'm still going to say it. Especially now with what we're seeing in Fantastic Beasts. Just give me all the Dumbledore I can get. I want to understand. Please let me understand. Hermione, you know, there's that great meme where all the books are renamed to be about Hermione. Yeah. Uh, If you haven't seen this, Google it. Check it out online. It's wonderful. But it basically gets at the heart of the idea that Harry maybe is dead in like three seconds if he doesn't meet Hermione. I mean, she's really, she's the MVP. Up through order, she's like the MVP. Shouts to the folks behind Simply Potter for that. Mm-hmm. Check it out if you haven't seen it yet. And, you know, the other one, I'm not sure how uh, compelling this would be as a work of literature, given his myopia and hubris, but I'd be fascinated to go deeper into Voldemort's mind. Wouldn't mind seeing the story play yeah. out from his perspective. Yeah. yeah. No? What's I would, he, I would, what's be, I would thinking when he, when would he takes there. Bella to bed, for example? Jesus. Like, is he just, is it sheer practicality? Is he just like, I want an heir? I'm, I'm thinking about just one other way to make myself immortal, which is through another being. Or is he actually looking for pleasure? He's not capable of love. I honestly wonder how that happened because he doesn't strike me as the person who wants to share his legacy with anyone, even a child, mm-hmm. you know, for them to be looked upon as a, you know, rightful owner of some of his power, I think would really bother him mm-hmm. in a certain way. You know. He would be jealous of his own child. For I, sure. Yes, he another would be, threat. I think he would hate it. Yeah. So how Bella got that milk? <laughs> I guess it would be something I'd be interested yeah, to, to find out how she got it. All right, wonderful. Next, next, Carolyn at Future Husky Twenty Thirty, Connecticut Huskies, maybe mm. Washington Huskies, could be. <laughs> My question is about my darling daughter, Caroline. Hello, Caroline. Hello. Who just turned seven and has already started asking to read Harry Potter selfishly. I want to read all seven books aloud with her. But part of the magic, sorry for the pun, 
don't be sorry, is discovering these books yourself. Do we read the first book together? And then I send her on her way. Do we read all seven together? Man, I don't want to. Oh. I don't want to tell you how to how to raise your child, but I, I do think reading the first one together and then letting her find her way through the story is the way to go. This is a beautiful that question. And by the way, that doesn't. It really is a heart wrenching question. And by the way, that doesn't mean that at the end of every chapter or segment of chapters or the day's reading, you can't get together and talk about what yeah. was just read. Yeah. I think that's wonderful and beautiful. Uh, yeah. I don't think there's a wrong choice. You know, I think reading them all together would be beautiful. Getting her started and then letting her find her own mm-hmm. way to experience the story would also be beautiful. And I, I think it probably boils down to that core idea again. Yeah. Choice yeah. is that, you know, Maybe you let her decide. Maybe you guys experience the beginning of this story together and then you ask her whether she wants to read the books on her own. And that choice will be hers to make and something that you, no matter what choice she makes, will feel proud of. And one of the most incredible things about this story and the gift that it keeps giving us is that we can all share it together in so many different ways. And if you're there in the moment, sentence to sentence, and seeing the reaction and the response play out on her face, that will be incredible. And if you realize later that she's developed her own thoughts and feelings about these characters and these moments in the story, that will be amazing too. There's no wrong choice. Incredible to share that together though. Beautiful. Harry is a story that unites across time. It's amazing. Next, at Calvin underscore says, says, which chapters were the hardest to record and why? I'm going to slightly amend this question to include writing our outline, creating mm-hmm. our, you know, putting our thoughts down for this as well. So I'm going to say in no order, Prince's Tale, Forest Again, King's Cross, because every line is laden with importance. And I think we both felt an enormous responsibility to mm-hmm. get it right. Yes. To you know, just really get it right to bring our analysis and our emotions and our knowledge of story to bear on those three really incredible chapters, Prince's Tale, Forest Again, King's Cross. So Prince's Tale, Forest Again, King's Cross, I think mm-hmm. we felt enormous pressure on those. The Cave, because it's just personally my favorite chapter in the series, just for reasons. Uh, and then The Wandmaker because of Dobby, mm-hmm. and it's just crushing. Mm-hmm. It was hard to get through. Um, those are my answers. Agree with all of that. Boy, they were all hard in they their own way, which was one own. of the one of the things about the process that was surprising, but also so cool. Yeah. You know, you I think each individual person has the 10 or 20 or however many chapters and moments that stand out in your mind as being these hallmarks, these signatures. But one of the things that made us appreciate the story more than we ever had, which I don't know if either of us thought was possible, was that in the chapters that you don't think of. Yeah, that's as rising to that level, yes. you realize how much is there, how much. And sometimes it's emotional weight. Yeah. Sometimes it's hardcore plot and mythology. Sometimes it's the humor that you want to find a way to honor. And I think that was that idea of balance. Yeah. It's something that we admire so much in the story and something we really wanted to bring to the podcast. And so I think heading into it, initially planning, we were thinking so far ahead into really from books four on the climax of every book. And then you get to literally first podcast, chapter one. It's like, there's just so much here already. We have to start this strong. And then you get to the mirror of Erised. And every beat along the way, you realize how much Horcrux foreshadowing there is that you want to point out the whole time. So Chamber of Secrets is a good example as a a whole of what you're talking about. Because Mm -hmm. it's the book that I think... 
generally speaking, most people would put last in their power rankings. And then you read it again. It's wonderful. It's so rich. It's wonderful. And not only is it wonderful, but it's like there's so much track laying, really important structural work there. Yeah. Particularly about Voldemort, of course. Yes. That you just can't help but talk about at length. You have to. And it's so good. Yeah, it. I agree with all of that. Yeah, um, and and I think a lot of it was through a character lens, you know, knowing we mm-hmm. wanted to properly honor Sirius, say yeah. for example, who you actually don't have a lot of time with. Yeah, you, you really that. don't have a lot of time with, and so every moment he appeared, we wanted to try to make the most of it. Things like that. You know, that said, my list is ultimately very similar to Jason's. I mean, nothing for me will compare to the Forest again in King's yeah. Cross to that episode. Forest again is my favorite chapter of all time. King's Cross has. I mean, it's the download on the it's entire huge, I mean, story. It's huge. Yeah, it's just like the whole. When we talk about sticking the landing, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Yes, you have to nail that chapter. Have to, because if you don't, the the entire thing falls flat. Yes, and with the forest again, I think that that means the most to both of us emotionally, mm-hmm. yeah. and really, 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 we wanted to properly convey that and honor yes. that. The prince's tale for for all the reasons that Jason's already said. I feel the same way about the cave. That episode was a. Super fun one for us, but a real challenge because of the three chapters that we paired. If you listen back to that, that might be our top volume sex joke episode, which you wouldn't necessarily think about heading (laughs) into the cave (laughs) chapter and was ultimately like, again, a really, a really fun and satisfying balance. But wanting to hit all those notes and honor all those different elements, you know, the mayor of Arisad was really important to get right. Yeah, it's important. The end of order. Mm-hmm. Sirius's death, the duel in the ministry, and certainly the Lost Prophecy download with Harry and Dumbledore is massive. And that was one of the first episodes where we went like extremely long and really basically devoted a full episode's amount of time yes. to one chapter. Certainly for me, you know, just the end of Goblet's my 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 favorite. It's what made me fall so deeply in love with the story and really just Wanted to get that right. I mean, all of it. Everything in Prince, all the memories. Yeah. It's you know, all, the secret riddle. All of it. You know, I guess order for me also, like it, every chapter in order almost. Yeah. Because. Occlumency. Because it's, again, it's a book that many are annoyed by because of Harry's extremely angsty teen nature. He's an annoying kid. But again, you know, I, I really took it. I really wanted to justify my love for that book and my absolute respect for JK as a badass in that book for exactly what we have said many times. She had the balls to make Harry unlikable, an unlikable teen who, but also in the most earned possible way, he just wants to be a kid. He just wants to do stuff that regular kids do, have a girlfriend, play sports. Instead, it's like, Go hang out with the teacher you hate, Mm -hmm. who's a dick to you, (laughs) who hated your dad, Mm -hmm. and have him probe through your mind so you can uh, (laughs) keep the Dark Lord out of it. All of it just rang really true to me, and I just respect the, the kind of mastery of her characters that she had in order to take us to that place. Totally. I think two more come to mind, actually. The other minister, because I think that was one where we really, really wanted to rise to the occasion of being able to do like almost like pure literary criticism, talking about the nature of the craft as because literally the characters you care about aren't in that chapter. That's a that's a look what I can do chapter for JK. Yes. Look at this other thing that I have that I haven't showed you at all. And we really we spent a lot of time looking forward to being able to properly Mm -hmm. pay homage to that. And then the opposite. The end of that book, The White Tomb. 
I mean, that's another one where that was really for us, I think, about gearing up to properly be able to assess all of the chapters in Deathly Hallows where you're so firmly ingrained in Harry's mind in his inner monologue. But just the emotion of that. I mean, Dumbledore, the burden, really feeling the burden of Harry being the hero and his crushing weight of his loneliness and his despair. All of them is the the short answer. For our next question, we're going to bring in a very special guest, Mm. ESPN senior writer Zach Lowe, to help us out. Folks, he told us he'd never speak to us again if we didn't have him on Binge Mode Harry Potter before the end of the run. Zach, thank you for stepping away from QuidditchReference.com for just a few (laughs) minutes to chat with us today about Harry Potter. We're honored. It's it's my pleasure. I'm sitting in Los Angeles International Airport, so if you hear random announcements in the background, that's not me. I'm sorry, but it's my it's my absolute pleasure. If we hear random statements in the background, we're going to assume that it's Ludo Bagman and Minerva McGallion McGonagall placing a wager on the latest on the Super Bowl. I I have not thought about Ludo Bagman in a long time. <laughs> the great red herring, Ludo Bagman. What a the great, great red herring. Great, great red herring. Great one. We often get NBA Harry Potter crossover questions when we do these mailbag episodes. So we're going to read you one from Josh, who is at Mr. Snuggle Puggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Josh says, the Wizards are often described like NBA picks, talented, extraordinary, extremely gifted, remarkable, etc. His question, what makes a great wizard? Is it brains, talent, work ethic, other factors? How much is genetic versus inherited versus learned? Are some wizards born with a higher ceiling than others talent-wise and reach their potential through rigorous training? Or do some never reach their ceiling because of bad work ethic and failure to adjust to an adult wizarding life? What do you think? And the comps there were LeBron and the, the, the Darkos yeah. <laughs> of the world. I think it's, it's always a combination of both, right? Like, you know, you're going to be certain wizards are clearly born better and have more authority over their spells and all of this. But I think the Harry Potter series taught us that, you know, what's in your heart really matters. You can learn, you can adapt. So it's a, it's a combination of both. I think the interesting question is like brains, the inner, you know, what brains versus courage versus the, yeah. the strength mm-hmm. of your moral fiber. Yes. You know, what is the most important out of all of those things? Work ethic alone, not enough. Work ethic alone without anything else, you're going into Hufflepuff and you're a loser. <laughs> but you, you got to have some other things. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We have to we have to challenge that. Hufflepuff is not a house for losers. Hufflepuff is a house for loyal friends and hard workers. Also, it's Cedric, wonderful. Yeah, Cedric, for, Cedric, for, for Cedric. Dogs, for lap dogs, for, oh for, for servants, for, for, for the guys are going to, you know, get, get the cool kids a glass of water. I will say this. Beer, the binge heads are going to come at you. Cedric, Cedric was like the Penny Hardaway of, of his generation. The guy was exemplary. And if not, for a really tragic, tragic uh, crossing of paths with uh, the killing curse, I, the guy w- would have been one of the greatest and at, you know, I, wizards that we know of. Two, question, two questions. Number one, <laughs> are we sure that Cedric wasn't dumb? And number two, <laughs> maybe the sorting hat. The you know, sorting hat's known to make mistakes or play a little bit fast and loose with the classifications. Could it could have just sorted him into the wrong place? Cedric is elite. We know that he was a very good student. In addition to everything else, he had a mastery of the spells that he needed. And and I would I would posit that we have another excellent candidate to consider through the Fantastic Beast series. Newt Scamander, star of his own film franchise, proud member of Hufflepuff House. You're not a Newt See, fan. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out on the prequels and the sequels. <laughs> I'm out. I haven't read Fantastic Beast. 
I don't care what she says about Dumbledore. I don't care what she says about how she regrets Ron and Hermione being together. Just leave it be. I don't, I'm not going to see Fantastic Beasts and the 9,000 sequels they're going to make. I just, I'm out. I'm out. So, okay, which house do you identify as being a member of? I would be a Ravenclaw, I think. Wow. Um, Interesting. I would be a Ravenclaw. I'm smart, but I don't <laughs> quite have, I'm not as courageous. Well, we're all smart. Everyone You're an extremely smart, witty person. Ravenclaw's a little, yeah. Ravenclaw's a little book smart. Like, I think yeah. I lean toward the book smart kind of smart. I don't think I have the kind of courage to do some of the things that get you into Gryffindor, apparently. Mm, I'm not evil. And I'm not a loser, so I'm going to <laughs> It's an interesting thing that uh, now I can say our tattoo artist now. That's right. Our tattoo artist, right. Mallory and I's tattoo artist, Lane uh, Freefall, noted uh, she's a British person. Mm -hmm. She noted that many Americans sort into Ravenclaw for some reason. Because we all think we're so smart. <laughs> I think it was <laughs> the subtext. Type A, type A. Kind of maybe, maybe you prioritize the wrong things in life kind of thing. You have good intentions, but you don't know how to channel them correctly. You know, that seems like a Ravenclaw kind of thing. Interesting. Zach, what's your, what's your origin story with the Harry Potter series? I was a skeptic. Mm -hmm. um, I mm -hmm. thought in, in, a, in a very Ravenclaw-y way that it was dumb <laughs> children's literature. And um, as I, I was dating a girl in, I don't know, 2006, 2007, whenever the sixth book was out, whenever yeah, that it. was. That's right around that. And yeah. I was at her apartment. I was at her apartment on Clinton Street in Brooklyn as she was reading the main climactic scene of book six and Half-Blood Prince. And she was like screaming and gasping <laughs> uh, on her bed as she was reading this. And I thought, OK, I'm all right. I'm going to give it a shot then. If it's, if it's this good. If you're literally making crazy noises because of whatever is happening in the book, I'm going to give it a shot. And actually, uh, I binged, I, I timed it so that I binged one to six and then seven came out like a couple of months later. So it was, it was like that. I felt like that for me, I didn't get to live along with it, but I at least got mm -hmm. to live along with the last one. I thought that was good. That's actually the way now I prefer to watch a lot of TV shows. Yeah. Like if uh -huh. they can prove to me that they're good through like, that's how I watch Breaking Bad. I binged everything and then I watched the last season with, uh, with everyone else. I thought that was a very good way to do it. And as you've returned to the story since then over the years, has anything about the way you relate to it or feel about it changed? Like is whichever book was your favorite book the first time through still your favorite? Does how you feel about it now match how you felt about it the first time? I maybe I may have read like four and five again because those were my favorite. But like mm. five and six are my favorite parts of the series. I don't think that anything has really changed. I remember being slightly disappointed by the last book, just slightly, just slightly, <laughs> um, because I thought all of the objects it was getting a little too. The plot was getting a sort of a little too mechanical. There are questions I have to go back and and answer for myself. Like like why couldn't Whoever was Mad-Eye Moody, like, why couldn't he just kill Harry at the school and get his blood and bring it over to Voldemort? I don't remember the answers to these questions, but there are, plot, <laughs> there are certain plot points that I want to go back and figure out how did she, how did she justify it? Mm -hmm. For that one, so that's a goblet of, uh, uh, not common, but an occasional yes. goblet of fire question that people have. And our answer to that has always been that the plot to move Harry to Voldemort through the Triwizard Tournament is essential because Voldemort at that point has not returned to his body yet, has not returned to full strength. And so it is imperative to him that he maintain the ability to operate in the shadows without 
anybody, but specifically Dumbledore and or the Ministry of Magic, knowing that he has returned. If they just murder Harry right. in the corridors of Hogwarts. Then all of a sudden the Ministry can marshal its full right. strength, which Voldemort was actually quite concerned about. Right. Was like, so using the Triwizard Tournament as cover would, in theory, had things gone according to plan, have allowed Voldemort to continue to bide his time and operate in the shadows until he was ready to reveal himself at last. Fair, fair. Fair. I also have a, I, I also have some objections to the afterword, but those are those are I think shared by many many readers. Wow. So wait, you mentioned that five and six are your favorites. Five is probably my favorite. Wow, we agree on that. Why is that one your favorite? Order of the Phoenix. Well, six six is the best just for the sheer amount of plot they're squeezing in related yeah. to Voldemort and his origin story. But you know, everyone complained that the books were too long. I kind of like that five just had all these random asides into the, you know, you go visit the hospital and learn about Neville's background. Yeah, yeah, I just felt yeah, like five took us, si- took us sideways in a lot of places. And I actually liked, you know, if you're going to build a world like that and it's going to be that compelling, I liked all the sort of sideways, inessential, non-Quidditch uh, twists. Five is Jason's yeah, favorite, my favorite book. Uh, four is mine. Six, I think we all agree, is just in terms of a sheer literary achievement, the best. Yeah. We ride very hard for, for the seventh book, though. Yes. Zach, any other Harry Potter thoughts that you want to share with us or the listeners at the end here? And, and our final question to you, in addition to or regardless of that, is... What makes this story so special in your mind? You know, whether it's how you feel about it personally or how you see it impacting other people. Why do you think that this has lasted and seems likely to continue to last forever as such a such a meaningful cultural force? Uh, my my one thought on any other thoughts to share is I think um, I think when Harry walks to meet Voldemort in the last book. Mm, yeah thinking that he's walking into one thing and not, not quite understanding what's going to happen. I think it's legitimately beautifully written. I think it's the best thing she ever wrote. Same. It's, it's really truly moving when he whispers, you know, stay close to me. Yeah. All, all very simply written. I think it's truly, truly beautiful. And I think it's the single best thing that she wrote in the whole series. My favorite, um, my favorite chapter of all time, the forest again, gorgeous. I just think it's simple and beautiful and she didn't overwrite it. And it's just, it's very moving. It's a, it's a real literary accomplishment that scene. Um, specifically, uh, as far as why, I don't know. It's just, it's fun. It's joyful. You appreciate the sheer scale of it. And like I said, you know, all the, a lot of the side plots that kind of get squeezed out of the movies and side mm-hmm. characters that you don't see and the ghosts and all the sort of, random stuff that's going on at Hogwarts that doesn't necessarily make it into the movies. I, I just found all of that very delightful and creative. And it's just adulthood is hard and it brought a lot of joy and, and it was just it was it was just fun to read. And sometimes it's cool to read stuff that is fun. Like I remember there was all this cultural criticism that came out when the seventh book came out about, oh, the infantilization of America mm-hmm, and we yeah. should all be reading these foreign policy papers and <laughs> our eyes are off what's really important. And it's like infantilization became a word that was used. And you know what? I don't think it's infantilization. I think it's called having some fucking fun. And I like it. And it was just very, very fun. Well, Zach, this was a delight. We hope that you will now not excommunicate us from your life. Because we... No, I'm in. You're in. You're still in. Thank God. Because you're absolutely a cherished part of our lives. Zach Lowe, senior writer at ESPN. Thank you so much. Congratulations, guys. Thanks, Zach. Next, at Kelly912. If you could have one more person kill a Horcrux, 
maybe the diadem? Parentheses. Who would you want to have that moment of glory? I do love the fiend fire arc and antagonist destroying his master's horcrux intentionally. That is elegant. Broiled crab. Broiled crab. But who besides Ron, Hermione, Dumbledore, Neville, and Voldemort himself would you want to give that opportunity to? Luna, number one, because- Interesting. I just, I, I like her. She's great. I just, <laughs> I, there's something about like an outsider among outsiders. Yeah. I find myself drawn to her in all her scenes. Just to, I want to know more about her, the way she thinks, the way, you know, the things that she says she sees. I'm, the fact that more people aren't like, tell me more about this gets to me sometimes. And then, you know what? Like, I want, I want, I want a moment of redemption for Slughorn. I think it would be really cool if after, in his mind, setting a lot of this in motion, yeah, he was able to get a do-over in some respect. I think that would be really nice for him. Would he be slaying the Horcrux in his emerald pajamas while eating? Would he use yes. crystallized pineapple yes. for the act Ooh. itself in any way? Harry, boy! <laughs> Not a lot of people know this, but crystallized pineapple destroys Horcruxes. My pick is Snape, once again. I'm returning to the Snape well a lot, but, you know, there's a reason for that. I think that it would be the most poetic Mm -hmm. for, you know, the other quote-unquote abandoned boy who is lumped in with Voldemort and Harry, finding his home at Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. The way that Snape, Harry, Voldemort, and Dumbledore are all connected in the each one is a part of the Hallows and Dumbledore's death theory. He just is so, they're all so deeply entwined and ingrained. And that to me feels like the one that would make the most sense from a storytelling perspective, from an actual plot mechanic perspective. I don't know how he would ever do it without blowing his cover, which is the problem, but that's the one that feels most right. Next, at ZB Saw says, which character do you each relate with most? Yeah. We all know what's going on in Harry's head, so it's easy to relate with him. But who's the non-Harry character you love and relate to the most? So those are kind of, love I think is different than yeah. relate to, but interpret it as you see fit. What's the answer? Luna again, mm-hmm. even though I don't kind of, I just, uh, like you know, the idea of being, an, again, uh, a real misfit is just appealing to me, and I just really like her character. Then I would go Neville, mm-hmm. who... Being the almost guy, but then finding his own way in it. I just, his his arc is incredible. Mm-hmm. You go back to Sorcerer's Stone and it's like, the guy's a mess. Yeah. He's almost dying like all the time. <laughs> Losing Trevor. Losing Trevor. Poor Trevor out there. <laughs> almost dying. And then by the end of it, he is a fierce warrior it's for incredible. what's right. And then McGallion, because I love sports, too. <laughs> I just because you're a degenerate gambler, too. I, I just love sports. And you know what? If, if given the chance to affect the outcome of my favorite team, I would do it. <laughs> I would do it. Of course you would. And you I would drop the bag in a hurry. I, that bag would be all over the place. If I listen, if I if young Zion Williamson enrolled at Hogwarts and here I am. <laughs> Like, oh, we're breaking all kinds of rules to get this kid a broom. Really has like a beater's build, I think. Yeah, but he's so fast, though. It's true. He'd be one of the most devastating beaters of all time. I think he'd kill kids. <laughs> God. <laughs> no safer place. Yeah. This is a hard question to answer because on the one hand, it feels like almost impossibly arrogant to 
say we relate to any of these people. And on the other hand, one of the masterworks of the series is that actually all of the characters are relatable in some ways. I mean, there's something you can see in all of them. You know, sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. I like to control things like Hermione does, right? But I can't say Hermione because then that's akin to being like, I'm I'm a genius! (laughs) (laughs) So this is a tough question to answer. You know, I like to make my friends laugh and and be there for them. But if I say I'm like Ron, then I'm also Mm. like, I I don't want to leave you in the tent. You know, so much smarter than Ron, though. I mean, no shots at Ron. He's a great guy. You are a lot smarter than Ron. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. My answer is also Luna. Yeah, she's great. Ultimately, for the reasons you said, and my answer here is almost aspirational. Yeah. When I look at Luna, I hope that I have the courage always to be that fully myself. Yes. Right. That's a great way to put it. That's it. Really, is a wonderful way to put it. Thanks, Bud. That's beautiful. Thanks, pal. I just love her. Next, (laughs) at Jewel STX. I wondered if your own faith or spirituality informs how you engage with the story, and if so, what would you be willing to share about that? Has that changed over time since first reading the story Mm. to this recent binge? Mm -hmm. Hmm. I think this. Why don't you go first? I personally, yes, am not a religious person. I did have a bat mitzvah. I've seen pictures of you at your bat mitzvah. <laughs> yes. My theme was jello. Jello and good evening. <laughs> Every table is a different flavor. That's a story for another time. But I am not a religious person. Yes. I do not currently practice mm-hmm. a religion. I think that in some ways I would describe myself as spiritual. Yeah. I often envy people who do practice. Because I envy true faith. Because what is true faith? True faith is, we return to this idea regularly when we talk about Game of Thrones and Harry Potter, it's believing in something you can't see. Right. And I am not all, always capable of doing that. And I often wish that I could do it more. I also think that you know, one of the most powerful things about this story is what it teaches us about death and Mm -hmm. how to think about death, how to process death, how to think about living beyond your mortal life. That's hard for me. And I envy that in other people. And this story in particular has opened up my mind, even if it hasn't changed it for, for just how I live my life personally, but better understanding how other people think and feel about things like this. And It has changed the way I think about and process a lot of other stories. You know, when, for example, if I watch something like San Junipero now, Mm. a Black Mirror episode, it's hard for me not to think about Harry Potter and what the lessons there about death as the next great adventure are. I feel uh, much the same way about my—I would describe myself certainly much the same way in terms of my personal faith and or practice. I think as a thoughtful person— you will often find yourself becoming a spiritual person. Just thinking about how the world and the universe works and the way uh, people respond to each other, the way communities respond to each other, the way communities confront each other. I think thinking about those dynamics, those systems that kind of underpin our daily reality uh, can't help but make you a spiritual person in some kind of way. But I'm not 
an organized religion kind of person either. You know, the way I think about this story is, and I think that the lesson of it for me is that doing the right thing is often really hard to do for various reasons. There will be systemic reasons. There will be people in a person's life that will kind of nudge you to not do the right thing. Actually, what's even more insidious is is the the lack of a binary. They're doing the right thing or not doing or doing the wrong thing. There's the doing nothing thing also. And that um, I think the lesson for Harry, for me, that I think is the lesson of, you know, just thinking about the world is that sometimes you have to at least call things wrong Mm -hmm. rather than just say nothing because it's easy. Right. And I don't know that that's changed so much as I've just come to appreciate it a lot more as a theme of Harry Potter is that sometimes you have to speak up and go, this is wrong. This thing is wrong. This is wrong. What is happening? Right. Even if you don't necessarily know how to fix it. Right. Naming the thing wrong is just as important. That's one of the things I thought about a lot while reading this. It often can seem like there's an unbreachable, unbridgeable divide between rationality and faith. And one of the real gifts of this story is reminding everyone that that's not true, that that does not have to be true. And that's really important. You know, some of my dearest friends are deeply religious people. And one of the things that I, I absolutely just cannot stand in life is somebody who is not practitioner Mm -hmm. of a certain faith saying to somebody who is, well, how can you believe that? Like, it's important to me that I always try to consider somebody else's circumstances and point of view, even if they're not my own. And so one of the things that this story has taught me, and I think teaches a lot of people, is that whatever you believe in personally, hope, despair, trust, these are things that are part of being human no matter what, and that unite us regardless of what each of us believes. Next, our very good friend. Our pal. Camilla, who has been with us since day one. Really, day one. Early, early, early Game of Thrones. How different would Harry Potter and A Song of Ice and Fire be if they were written by George R.R. Martin and J.K. Rowling, respectively? The answer to this one is easy, folks, and it is that if J.K. Rowling had written A Song of Ice and Fire, it would be be finished. It would be done. Which is, t- I feel bad I saying feel that, bad but it's She true. would have had it all mapped out. We would. Four years before. Seven books. Before actually even getting the, the actual manuscript delivered to the publisher of book one. We would have felt those winter winds and we would have dreamt of spring by Again, now, folks. She delivered seven books in a decade. <laughs> where, seven in a decade. Where would We're we have, waiting where eight would... years now. <laughs> eight years <laughs> for... Winds of Winter, the follow-up to A Dance of Dragons, the fifth book. We are waiting eight years now. How far would George have gotten in Harry Potter? Uh, I think he, well, he crushed the first three in relative, like it was like two years. So I think he'd get to Azkaban and then it'd be like five years until (laughs) Goblet. But Goblet would come out. Right. And then it would be like six years until Order and then he would stop. We support you, George. We support you. We believe in you. And I've said this many times, but I'll say it again. If Wins never comes out, and God forbid that happens, <laughs> I think Wins will come out. I do believe they will come out. If this is all he does, mm-hmm. if that's it, I think the, the world building is such an achievement. It's, yes. an, it's, it's unbelievable achievement. Incredible. Just the amount that you know about that world. It's amazing. Is incredible. 
oh, what were the laws during, uh, you know, Jaharis the Concilia? I, I know what they are. It's incre- It's an incredible achievement, and we support George, even though he's not going to finish, and it's been eight years since. <laughs> we, eight, believe, we believe in you, George. We believe in you. Call up Joe. Maybe she'll help you. Yeah. Next. Wow, I've been waiting for this one. <laughs> Logan Cassell. Yeah. At Jajaz Champ. Mm-hmm. How should I go about choosing my first... And probably only HP tattoo. Let's go to tattoo having expert, Valerie Rubin. Folks, I have a Harry Potter tattoo now. If you haven't seen the Instagram story, we can exclusively reveal here on the Thinshow and Harry Potter finale that I finally did it. Jason came with me, was there by my side to help me find my courage. I got the outline of the glasses and the lightning bolt. Simple delicate left forearm i love it i'm already thinking about what's next i can't wait for more my advice logan would be follow your heart you know what my advice is don't ask the question because it's not about what somebody else thinks it's about what you want what part of the story do you think about the most what do you want to symbolize Mm -hmm. what is gonna feel right to you throughout your entire life just search for that meaning. Do what feels right for you. Because it's not for other people. It's for you. Now, first HP tattoo leads me to believe he's got other tattoos. Mm. So there's a like, you know, if you've already got other tattoos and you know what it feels like, then you can just go. You, there's a there's a wide palette, right. wide canon. So you, very wide canon. You went for your favorite moment, like a representation of your yeah, favorite chapter the with the cave. I went very broad, yeah. very macro, you know, a symbol of Harry Potter where it's mm. like a snapshot of what this is. One thing I would like to do in the future is a quote. I would like to get. Oh, cool. One of my favorite quotes. I think that would be great. Wonderful. Maybe well, some chapter stars. People like to do that. Those are cool. You know which one I've seen that is really cool? This is like advanced. Outline of Hogwarts? I've seen a bunch of those that are really, really awesome. We've seen the Luna and the Thestral mm, one that was really one. cool. Great one. Um, I've seen uh, some I Must Not Tell Lies done on the back of the hand oh, with yeah. like pink and white ink so it looks like a scar is really creative but not for everyone obviously obviously various things you can do with the sign of the deathly hallows yeah there's a lot of things you can do love when people i love a very simple clean version of that and i love when people blend that with other things we've seen like a phoenix rising in the background Mm -hmm. or like lily's doe the stag various other things you can do jason has the elder wand now also which is very cool Shouts to uh lane freefall by the way our tattoo artist we can now say our our who an actress as well and went out for the role of Cho Chang. Incredible. It didn't happen. She's too old, she said. She was like, I had piercings by that time. Next. At Ren Scanlon asks, what's your favorite iconic flex in the series? So I think, many choices. I think it's uh, Dumbledore dunking on Dolish in the Aurors. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yes. every time Dolish gets dunked on, actually, is in- an incredible flex for everyone. Neville's grand dunking on Dolish is like... Poor, oof. poor, poor Dolish. But Dumbledore in that moment where, he, you know, it's incredible. He, you don't really... He's just like shit-talking these guys. It's amazing. Mine was a, a two-way tie for Dumbledore Order of the Phoenix moments. That one, and really that whole scene, when he escapes his office, when he flees... From Dollish, from Fudge, from Umbridge, I could break out, but what a waste of time, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, Dumbledore calling Voldemort Tom. Yeah, that's great. When they are about to duel yeah. in the atrium of the Ministry of Magic is an unrivaled flex. Love it. Incredible. Next, Macy Ema at MJ Ema asks, 
Oh boy. Oh <laughs> boy. If you could date anyone from the Harry Potter series, who would it be? Easy answer. The MILF. No. Well, I love the MILF. <laughs> love. She's definitely the marrying kind. I'm gonna marry the MILF and, and, you know, father many, many children on her loins <laughs> and live happily together for a long time. But if we're just dating, we're talking about dating? Mm-hmm. Tonks. What? Yeah. I am shocked right now. That's no shade of Tonks. You you have succeeded in stunning me in the why. finale. I thought you were going to say Myrtle or I'll the Mill. Or Floor. We can just, you can really mix it up with Tonks. Uh, <laughs> role play. You just like, <laughs> okay. you can just really get crazy with Tonks. Okay. Let me There's remind you. a rich you. and wide canon that can be drawn upon with Tonks. You, you can have fun. You can and she's a great person. Human transfiguration with anyone though. Yeah, but with Tonks, it's, it's it's with Tonks, it's different. Yeah, there's a whole another. Yeah, with the transfiguration, there's just it's a lot more involved. <laughs> with <laughs> incredible answer, Thank you. my pick is Bill Weasley. Oh yeah, Bill can fuck. There's <laughs> 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 Bill's dragon leathers in a heap on your floor. Yeah, I mean. I don't even need to go into detail. I think it's just understood. I guess, like, and then I guess floor too, but like, you know, floor, you'd never know if it was real. Is it just the Vila talking? Like, what is happening? Interesting. But that would be more, does she know it's real from you? Yeah, that's true. Because it was 100% would be real. It'd just be like, <laughs> why am I all of a sudden like f- picking up dumbbells and like pumping iron? <laughs> Kyle O'Brien. <laughs> Name one character you would want to spend the day with, living or dead by series end, and say why. And what would you want to do with them, and what's your justification to spend it with them than any other character? I think, you know, if— Are we going to each pick Luna for the 20th time? No, I'm going to pick Dumbledore just because it's not just the great conversation, but you could just really learn a lot of stuff about life. Yeah. You know— I, I would so I'm going to pick Dumbledore. I would want to learn from Dumbledore and ask Dumbledore questions. Mm-hmm. I would want to hang out with Luna— and I think in terms of just learning more about the person, finally getting a better sense of who this person is and sort of trying to uh, uh, align the competing accounts, I, I wouldn't mind spending some time with James Potter, cracking that nut once and for all. Interesting. I think a day with the Marauders. That would be, f- although how would you, how would you resist the urge to be like, this guy's going <laughs> to literally rat you out. I mean, you just have to have the discipline. You just have to. You got to find a way. I would love to hang out with Dobby, too. Fred and George would be a great fit. Fred and George would be fun. Uh, man. Arthur would be fun to have a beer with, too. Lupin would be fun for me. Dinner Arthur. with Arthur and Molly would be lovely. Oh, I would love to eat dinner at the, at at the, the Weasley borough. household. That would be great. And be like, and just, uh, first of all, Arthur would be like, you are the most fascinating person I've ever met. Tell me about plugs. Tell me about everything. What is this? What, are you, what is it? This is a shoe, Arthur. Oh, my God. Tell me about... Air Max. Tell me about, oh, Air Max 97. <laughs> Unbelievable. Next. Next. Ha-ha. At Counterpoke asks, this is very sweet. How did Mallory and Jason learn to trust and love each other? Just through podcasts, through a friendship charm? Well, uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it was pretty... Seamless. Honestly, we got thrown into doing this podcast called Binge Mode on the very first day we moved to L.A. Had a couple meetings in which it became obvious that we both thought about the story and wanted to approach executing the series in much the same way. And then as soon as we began working together, it was clear that we both, one loved story, felt the 
responsibility of analyzing it in a certain way and just had similar um, a similar work ethic in view, I think. Yeah. And so that honestly just made it easy. It just made it easy. She's an incredibly smart and hardworking person. <laughs> And I love to make her laugh while we're doing this podcast. I learn something new about stories I think I know about when she talks about it. It's great. And that's how it happened. Everything he said. It's beautiful. You know, truly everything Jason just said, I I, I feel fully. And why do people fall into fantasy mm-hmm. stories? You want to belong. You want to feel like you're a part of something. And so to be able to find that with each other in talking about these stories on this podcast has been a really 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 special gift yeah it's been wonderful and in addition to everything jason said about the work ethic and the way we think about stories and how we value them and how seriously we take them another thing for me and i think for both of us is especially when you're younger and you love things like this you don't know if it's okay right do i have to be cool can i say i love this thing what are people gonna think and you don't ever really lose that kind of fear or anxiety in your life that's just part of being a human being and so to be able to say out loud time and time and time again i love this thing here's why and to never ever once feel judgment from across the table and to just feel full acceptance and support is like something i will cherish for the rest of my life (laughs) now i'm crying folks KD at KTRNAD. Who won the House Cup overall? Love you guys, by the way. Thank you. Love you too. Here, thanks to Zach Cram for compiling this, is the ultimate top five tally. Tied for fifth. Ron, Ginny, Snape, and Sirius. Cram notes rightly that it is quite fitting that Snape and Sirius rivals would be tied here. Three wins each. And two of the wins that Ron and Ginny had there were individual and then they each had a shared win as part of the weasley family i gotta say i'm surprised ron didn't have a few more wins that stands out to me looking at this fourth voldemort with four wins i mean that's tra- it tracks honestly next dumbledore with five wins hermione granger checking in second with seven wins and then harry potter 11 wins took the house cup but really all of you took the house cup that's right for listening to this podcast jason pain must and will come so i'm supposed to stand and watch No, you're supposed to teach binge mode how to meet life. Today, before we cross platform nine and three quarters back into the muggle world, we want to take a few moments to each share our final thoughts on what makes this story so special to each of us and hopefully so many of you. And first, let's hear from Isaac Lee, our indispensable producer. Before I knew Harry Potter as Harry Potter, I knew him as Harry Potter. I read the first three books in Korean, my first language. I must have been six or seven at the time. And I remember just being enthralled by that skinny little boy living in a cupboard under a staircase. Somehow, even though I was living in Seoul and he in Wizarding England, I could relate with him. And as my family moved to the States, I remember my brother and I took turns reading the latter four books in English this time. My brother actually spoiled the end of Half-Blood Prince for me, that Snape kills Dumbledore, before I even had a chance to read it. But funnily enough, Prince to this day remains my favorite book in the series. All this to say, I quite literally grew up with Harry. He was like the English older brother I never had, except he could do magic and I couldn't. (laughs) I watched every movie in theaters. I even played the video games. 
Once I got to college, I really didn't expect the story or even the fantasy genre at large to stay with me. I mean, it just seemed like one of those childish obsessions that you put away once you grow older. Well, the opposite couldn't have been more true. So I have this habit of rewatching movies I've watched before. It's kind of like comfort food for me. And living away from home, it became a more frequent habit. And at the time, my music career was really ramping up and sometimes I just needed a break. And the Harry Potter films ended up being something I returned to, possibly more than anything else. Fast forward to around a year ago. I was rereading the books in preparation for this podcast, and I had gotten to the scene of the Mirror of Erised in Stone, where we see James and Lily in the mirror, and for the first time, it really struck me how young they were when they died. They were just 21. And in a moment of self-examination, I looked at that and thought, that's not a perspective I would have had when I was in my teens. Again, I looked up to Harry as an older brother figure. And that's an aspect I truly love about the story and J.K. Rowling being the person who authored it. She wrote about the human experience as a fully formed adult through the avatar of these children. She explores themes too complex for a six-year-old Korean boy and yet entertaining on face value to the point that that boy returns to the story again and again in a different language grasping new nuances, gaining change perspectives, and one day producing a podcast about it. And now let's hear from Zach Cram, our indispensable researcher. I read the first four Harry Potter books in a whirlwind. It was the third grade and a friend's birthday party was to have us watch the newly released Chamber of Secrets movie. So my mom suggested I give the books a try to understand the upcoming film. I still remember where I was when I read the first chapter of the first book, half-crouched between my floor and my bed, too captivated by the magic of Rowling's words to even find or need a more comfortable position. I snuck the last chapter of stone after my bedtime, spiriting a light under my covers, like Harry completing his homework over the summer. I finished the final thrilling pages of Goblet two weeks later and finally came up for air, frustrated only because I couldn't get more now. I found more in the form of the next three books, of course, and in those, the elements that raise the series to even greater heights. The wonder of the Harry Potter books isn't just the magic. It's not just Rowling's world-building or her characters, or even the impeccable planning she conducted at the start, though finding all the foreshadowed nuggets is one of the joys of revisiting the texts. More than all those strengths, the singular marvel of the series, to me, is the satisfaction of its end. So many young adult franchises I devoured as a kid, from the Pendragon Adventures to the series of unfortunate events, to many others that now stand tall on my childhood bookshelves, faltered as they reached their close. That's okay. I'm a sports writer. I know most things we love peak well before the end. But Harry opens at the close, opens into a new level of drama and sophistication and pure aesthetic prose, in the very spaces that were most vital to the story, and the lasting impression it leaves. The final impression, if we're flexible with our definition of canon. There's a reason I've read The Princess Tale more than any other piece of literature. There's a reason I feel an irrepressible itch when I go too long without reading it, and the important pieces that came before it. And then before I know it, I'm rereading the entire thing from start to finish, and gaining a new appreciation all the while. And if opening at the close is both a key line in the series and a key metafactor in its own success, then it follows that my own love for Rowling's work would yield my own opportunities in its stead. While I eagerly awaited the final books to publish back a decade and change ago, I hardly knew how to handle my hairy thoughts in the meantime. I didn't spend much time on the internet when I was young. 
I never made a Pottermore account. I never read fan theories. I never scrutinized every new JKR snippet or poster tease because I didn't know those even existed. But now I wouldn't be in a relationship if it weren't for Harry Potter, about whom my partner and I chatted for hours as our initial friendship blossomed. I wouldn't have moved to a new city without this connection forged through magic. Heck, I might not even be employed by the ringer.com, a great website, if Mal didn't learn I could recite all 199 chapter titles from memory and decide to hire me thereafter. But I'd be listening to every episode, obsessively refreshing my podcast feed as I sought another slice of Potter lore. In recent years, I have literally had dreams in which I conducted wand duels with Cersei and Tywin Lannister. There's hardly a better place I could find myself or a more fun basis for community. This has been hard to write. I typed and deleted many, many, many thoughts. You know, this kind of what Harry Potter means to me and 800 words. It's been uh, difficult to string together. Uh, but what I keep coming back to is that magic exists because storytelling must be magic. It is, I will argue, the essential magic, which makes us human, makes life worth living. But not only that, gives life form and substance and allows us to share that substance with other people. For instance, J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stolen, Stolen Moments, in rooms and cafes across England, Scotland, and Portugal, beginning in the early 1990s. She was writing it when her mother died. J.K. never told her mother that she was writing this story, and she poured her grief and her longing and her fears into the tale. And in 1997, after numerous rejections, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was published. Where were you when you first read the story? You might have been anywhere in the world because storytelling is a combination of time travel and telepathy. Sometime before you began your journey, J.K. imagined Albus Dumbledore arriving at Privet Drive and wrote, a man appeared on the corner the cat had been watching, appeared so suddenly and silently you'd have thought he just popped out of the ground. The cat's tail twitched and its eyes narrowed. Nothing like this man had ever been seen on Privet Drive. He was tall and thin and very old, judging by the silver of his hair and beard, which were both long enough to tuck into his belt. He was wearing long robes, a purple cloak that swept the ground, and high-heeled buckled boots. His blue eyes were light, bright, and sparkling behind half-moon spectacles, and his nose was very long and crooked as though it had been broken at least twice. What did you see in your mind's eye when you read those words for the first time, or the hundredth time, or heard me saying them right now? Did you see what J.K. saw? Is the purple of Albus's cloak and the blue of his eyes the same shade and hue as that that she imagined? Does it matter that, in my imagination, Albus's nose might bend in one direction, and yours the other, and J.K.'s still another? No. There is an eternal truth there that we're sharing, we're seeing the same thing, even if the details are different. She created these images in her mind and then through the magic of storytelling sent them downstream in time to us to share. This cannot be anything but magic. I'm an anxious person. And so sometimes I think about my wallet. What's in it? What's not in it that should be? What would happen if I lost it? I think about which of the contents are truly irreplaceable. And when I do, I think of a small piece of paper folded in half and then folded again that my stepmom, Debbie, gave to me more than a decade ago. There's a doodle of a cat on the bottom. There are X's and O's, the binary code shorthand for love. And there's a quote. 
scrawled and slanted writing that could belong to Dumbledore himself. Of course it is happening inside your head, Harry. But why on earth should that mean that it is not real? I cherish that piece of paper as though it were spun from pure gold. Debbie gave it to me in 2007. After we finished reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Because she knew how much that line in the entire Harry Potter series meant to me. Those words, which close King's Cross as the mist swirls back around the truth, were a gift from Dumbledore to Harry, and are among the greatest gifts that J.K. Rowling or anyone has ever given to me. They embody why we love stories. They remind us that ink and paper can be stronger than concrete or metal or any other building block. They convey in a single sentence the unsurpassed power of fantasy to unlock for each and every one of us a world of infinite possibility. I didn't get a Hogwarts letter when I was 11, but I remember so many of my Harry Potter firsts as vividly as if they'd occurred with a half-giant knocking down the door to usher in my magical awakening as the sea raged around us. They're seared into me like fire whiskey. I saw the first three movies before I read the books, and I can still recall each moment with Hermione-like precision. Stone, in Gainesville with my cousins on a trip to visit family. Chamber, with my high school buddy Irene. And Azkaban, with my sister Allison after which I felt so transported and so desperate for someone to let me back through Platform 9 and 3 quarters that I drove right to a bookstore and bought the four paperbacks that were out at the time. I blazed through the first three books, succumbing fully to their majesty. And then during a family vacation in the Outer Banks in the final weeks before I was set to head off to college for my freshman year, I opened book four. Goblet of Fire has always been particularly special to me because it was the first Harry Potter book I went into clean with no movie scenes playing in my mind, with no idea of what wonders and heartache awaited me. I don't consider it hyperbolic to say that reading it changed my life. I was euphoric, transfixed. I laughed and cried. I grew attached to the characters in a way that transcended any prior reading experience. When we got back to Baltimore, I drove straight to a bookstore to buy Order of the Phoenix, which was out in paperback as well at that point. I devoured it. And then I began to reread the series again from the start, a habit I continued nearly uninterrupted until Half-Blood Prince's publication, and a habit that I would then repeat, books one through six instead of one through five, in The Wait Between Prince and Hallows. Back in those early days, I begged Debbie, who'd patiently jumped waves by my side as I shared my fevered theory of the day, to read the books too. She did, and she loved them. I begged my mom to read them as well. She did, and she loved them. And a few months ago, she joined the Binge Mode Facebook group, where, as you've surely seen, she took some well-earned credit for much of the blue humor that informs our adult content warning. Even my stepdad, not a Harry fan, but an avid train collector, indulged my fascination with the Hogwarts Express. My dad, meanwhile, delighted in seeing me fall so deeply into a grand tale. When I was a kid, he put a shelf in my room and he filled it with the fantasy stories that he hoped I'd read one day. Stories that it meant something to him when he was young. That Harry wasn't a book from the shelf was never any kind of failing. It was further proof that literature is a type of room of requirement, granting each of us whatever we may need. In time, I read many of the books that my dad gave me too, like Dune and Watership Down, and I love them as well. And eventually, A Song of Ice and Fire became one of the most important things in my heart. But Harry has always been unique for me. It changed the way I felt about reading, about stories, and in so doing, it changed the way I felt about life. 
Harry brought me such comfort in those first few weeks of college as I tried to learn about the campus and my classes and all these new people and myself. Sometimes alone in my dorm room, I would take out a sketch pad and try to draw the opening chapter illustrations from Stone. I like tracing baby Harry most from the opening chapter of The Boy Who Lived. He looks so peaceful despite everything that he'd suffered. He has no idea what wonders await. I hung a Prisoner of Azkaban poster on my dorm room wall, and when the cover art for Half-Blood Prince came out, I hung that too. It felt like a little lightning bolt scar of my own, a declaration that this story is a part of me. Many of the best friends I made loved Harry too. Allison, Taylor, Katie, Suzanne, my marauders. They became my bridesmaids a decade later, and the bachelorette party t-shirts they made me were Harry-themed. A seriously good time. And when my beloved Allison and I text to this day, we still sometimes call each other Mooney and Prongs. I went to the midnight release of Half-Blood Prince with Debbie back in Baltimore, but by the time Hallows came out, I was in New York for a summer internship. Amazingly, the best friend I made that summer, Lindsay, loved Harry Potter too. We went to the Union Square Barnes & Noble together and got our faces painted and rode the subway home with the hardback in our hands, that unmatched mixture of anticipation and dread in our hearts. We wanted to know what awaited, but we didn't want it to end. But one of the greatest lessons that Harry has taught me is that it doesn't end. Not really. Every passing day, I experience something about this story anew. This past year, I gave my nephew the illustrated edition of Stone for his 10th birthday. I find myself as desperate as ever to evangelize for this story, to bring it to those who might enjoy basking in its glow. I got to meet and befriend, along with Jason, Melissa and Ellie, whose work at the Leaky Cauldron back in the day gave me some of my first tastes of the spirit of unrivaled community that Harry forged, and through it, a sense of real belonging. After a decade, I reconnected with one of my best friends from middle school and high school, Brandon. Somewhere along the way, I suggested that he read Harry Potter, and he did. And as we shared the story together, it became at once a time-turner that transported us back into our past friendship and a reminder that time is just a construct and a story like Harry is strong enough to bridge across any divide and into the great beyond. And in recent months, my husband Adam read Harry Potter for the first time because he wanted to be able to listen to Binge Mode. And it meant so much to me to share the wizarding world with him, just as it's meant the world to me to share it with all of you. This story has taught me, taught us so much that our choices matter, that love can conquer hate, that we are who we decide to be, not what others seek to make us, that death, as William Penn said, is but crossing the world, that we can find our courage and our fear, and that we can find something else too, acceptance, inclusion, friendship, the family that we choose. Jason and I speak of that last idea so often because it transcends the theme of any one story. It is the bounty that fantasy gives us. When I talk to you, Jay, about that line from King's Cross or Harry's walk into the forest or Harry gazing into the mirror or any of it, I'm not just talking about a story. I'm sharing it with you. I'm inhabiting it with you. I'm choosing that family, and you're choosing it too. The world can be so dark, and life can be really lonely. But Harry is a rare uniting force, a source of lasting magic as powerful as anything that the ministry studies behind that great closed door. In Stone, Dumbledore says to Harry, to have been loved so deeply even though the person who loved us is gone will give us some protection forever. It is in your very skin. 
And a week ago, we went to a tattoo shop together. And we put this story, this love for Harry and all he's taught us into our skin. And I really believe that this tale and the community that's sprung up around it will give us some protection forever. Sometimes people ask me why or how I care about something make-believe this much. But it's real to me. It's more real in some ways than so many of the things around me that I can touch. Because Harry is something that I can feel. It's alive to me, as the best stories are, a whisper on the wind calling me home. When Harry gazed upon his father's teenage form in Order of the Phoenix, he thought it was as though he was looking at himself, but with deliberate mistakes. And that's what the best fantasy stories are for us, too. Not an escape from our lives, not truly, but that slightly skewed version of our own realities that allow us to feel more at peace when we face our own boggarts and our own dementors. Dumbledore told Harry that the dead we have loved never truly leave us, and that's how I feel about this story, too. It lives in me still. It lives in us. It courses through our veins and gives us strength. Strength to try to know ourselves. Strength to try to know each other. Strength to try to know the world. It is our Patronus, a force of hope and love, never asking us to hide from our despair, but giving us the courage to stand up and face it and hopefully to break through it. And so I carry that small piece of paper with me still all this time later as a reminder of how Harry unites us and reaches across time, of how Hogwarts exists inside each of us, a castle of our own making, of how to the well-organized mind, anything we want can be the next great adventure. All was well. Well, friends, thank you for this one last golden day of peace. A massive, grop-sized thank you to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher who were with us every step of the way, acting as Binge Mode's Patronus, always helping us find the light. We could not have done this without them, and we award the final house cup of the Binge Mode HP run to them for proving time and again that help will always be given a Binge Mode to those who ask for it. A huge thanks to Bill Simmons, Jeff Chow, Sean Fennessy, and everyone else at The Ringer a great website for supporting passion and obsession and to the entire podcast team, social media team, video team, and our team, and everyone else who's been involved in making Binge Mode from the very beginning for helping us manage our mischief every single day. And of course, biggest thank you of all to the listeners who helped Binge Mode Harry Potter find its way out of the cupboard under the studio stairs. We hope that you all enjoyed discussing this sacred story as much as we did and that you will join us again very soon for the return of Binge Mode Game of Thrones. And in the meantime, please keep this podcast feed yes. active. And as we said before, please stay plugged into all of our various social media communities. We'll be there with you. Until next time, remember, do not pity the dead, binge heads. Pity the living. And above all, those who live without Binge Mode. What is she doing? I asked about Cedric, and she's just been doing this now for 20 minutes. You get her to stop? I can't get her. She won't stop. I have to get out of there. We have, let's leave. The water is up, up to our ankles now. This is crazy.